1: Welcome to Counter Charge. I'm Brian Broder. And I'm Corey Reynolds.
2: Howdy, this is Ryan Smith. I'm Chris Fisher. I'm Cody Smith. I'm Steve Hildre. And
3: I'm Ralph and welcome to another episode of Counter Charge. We're back again for our second episode in this series on how to run events from the TO perspective. and this time, we're going American. So welcome, everybody, to the show.
4: All right, so you guys, I think all of you have been on Counter Charge before, so we don't need to know about your story, but it'd be really interesting for each of you to introduce yourselves and talk about the events you run. And then why you became a tournament organizer in the first place. So, Brian, let's kick it off with you.
1: Yeah, I run a Bison Brawl. This will actually be the inaugural year of it. Uh, we're going to have a fairly large turnout. We're going to have over 30 people for it. Run it out of Oklahoma City. And we started uh, having Bison Brawl because there was a pretty large need in the mountain region for uh, another major GT And uh, we've had some drop-offs with uh, a few events in Oklahoma over the years. Slobberknocker was the major one here. And there's been a, a few uh, problems over the last uh, couple of years with Knocker. And so I decided to take over those reins, create our own just Kings of War specific tournament. And it looks like it's going to be pretty successful. And I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. So, Corey, how about yourself? Hi,
5: I'm Corey Reynolds. And uh, I am the TO for the Crossroads Grand Tournament in upstate New York. And this will be our 13th year of running Crossroads. And so I started running it uh, basically... After I'd started attending grand, like the the old Games Workshop grand tournaments back in Philly and in Baltimore, where there were these really immense uh, tournament scenes, and uh, just got hooked on it, and so I decided you know I think we could do something like that from a more independent viewpoint, and just kind of took off from there. So that's how I got into uh, running tournaments.
4: Pretty cool. I'm actually. I wanted to drop in here that I am hoping to get to Crossroads in 2020. This is that's that's my aim. I have fulfilled. I've filled in all of the wife forms, and I have permission to travel to the US. So that's happens to fit in with the timescale and area I'm coming to. So there you go, Chris. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, man. Well, we'll see. We'll see. You can uh, beat my ass in person, Chris. Over to you.
6: <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, Chris Fisher, and I run the Mountaineer GT in Martinsburg, West Virginia. I've only run any events since Kings of War. Since we switched over to Kings of War from Warhammer, I never really was in the Warhammer competitive scene. But I got into the competitive scene with Kings of War, and I was having a good time. So I decided to run Mountaineer with my brother, who moved away a couple of weeks afterward. So basically, I took over and been running it. This is we just had our third year this past June. The Mid Atlantic just grew, didn't we? We took over Pennsylvania and a couple other states, but. Before we took over Pennsylvania, we were the largest Mid-Atlantic event, which wasn't saying a lot either. We were like 30 to 35 people in the second year. This year we got up to 40. I do some one-day tournaments as well at the store, or at least I, I used to do quite a few more, and then my son was born, so I haven't done so many lately. Just try to do a couple events in the, the northern Mid-Atlantic area.
4: Awesome. And Cody, how about yourself? Yeah,
7: uh, this is Cody Smith. I'm the pathfinder extraordinaire for florida i run the crucible gt in orlando florida this will be our fourth year that it happens it's actually coming up next month um i also run or up until this like chris up until this year i had a son so i uh, stepped away from running our monthly tournaments but every month we run a tournament at armada games in tampa we have a pretty strong community that comes out for those i became a to because of a need i guess uh The existing TO in the area kind of backed out last minute for Crucible two and a half years ago, and I uh, stepped up short minute, and uh, Rob Phaneuf actually came down, helped me out, taught me a lot, and ever since then, we've just been going like gangbusters. So, Ryan, how about yourself? Uh, I'm the TO
2: of the Alamo Grand Tournament. I've been running that for five years now, and I was also one of the co-TOs of the United States Kings of War Masters this past year, 2019.
4: Cool. So we started this series with the UK tournaments as kind of the original home of Kings of War. But now it's on to the big boys. So uh, we've invited TOs from some of the biggest and uh, most established tournaments from across the US. Talk about what really goes into running tournaments for an American player base. So we've covered a bit of the why you guys started to run tournaments. So let's uh, head straight into the what of tournaments. So I want to start off, um, and we'll follow roughly the same framework, but we'll tune it as we go through, as we did with the UK tournaments. Let's talk about tournament names and themes, because this is where I think the US really leads the way in terms of branding. So do tournament names, do they matter? You know, And how do you uh, keep that brand? Do you change your tournament name every time? Is it good to build up a kind of an ethos around a tournament? And what's in a name? So uh, who wants to kick off?
5: I'll start off here. So... When we first started Crossroads, we actually spent a long time just agonizing over the name because we knew that was something that we wanted to have stick around, and you wanted to kind of, like you said, it's about branding and having name recognition, something that people tie with your event. So when they're talking about where they want to go, that's one of the things that was out there. He's like, okay, we need to have some some kind of recognizable brand that people can focus in on.
6: I think the name is. It's really important. It uh, It's kind of, that's your brand. I mean, we don't do a lot of advertising outside of you know, Facebook, but that name recognition, that that really helps people to kind of get an idea of what your tournament is, and they hear about it, you know, they hear about it in the scene and so forth, and then it puts it on their radar for future years. Uh, we've had a lot of out-of-region guys come in the past couple of years, and it's probably it's pretty much just because, you know, they've heard the name over time and they've heard, you know, maybe good things about the tournament. But I think putting the name out there, keeping it consistent, it really helps uh, keep your your tournament going.
1: I'll completely agree with that. Uh, We boiled over a little bit over here what the name was going to be, and we wanted something that the name kind of associated where in the United States you were going to be traveling to to get to that because we have so many people that come from out of state. And so we've got a lot of, like, buffalo around here. And so we've kind of themed our tournament around colors, around that
7: buffalo theme, and I plan on keeping that year after year. Yeah, and kind of piggybacking on that, um, I inherited the name Crucible. It's part of the, a larger convention that, that happens here that the GT is at. But we've since moved to October. We used to be in the middle of the— beginning of the year and so we've kind of adopted this halloween theme and going back to themes that matter i remember as an earlier listener to the show hearing things about tnt and wrestling themes and things like that it really engaged me and wanted me to kind of look into these different events i think that's important i mean we're in an age of where marketing is is uh, everybody's job now with facebook you have to kind of put yourself out there and Having a strong theme can help.
5: Yeah, I like the theme idea. I think there's certain shticks out there that are definitely attractive, right? I mean, the TNT wrestling theme is one that kind of sticks out. And I think that's just its something cool, something to add something to the event a little bit to change it up and make them
7: different. Yeah, and I think that's something where over time, it just grows and grows. Like the first time you do it, it might not be that grand. I remember feeling that way the first time I ran a GT, just thinking, oh, man, only 16 people came or whatever. But then the next year, more people come and more people come, and then they become more into the theme. And then you just... You come across posts on Facebook that reference your events, and you're like, oh, wow, that's awesome. Yep, something stuck, right? Exactly.
2: The way the market is right now for tournaments, we're so saturated. I mean, there's a tournament every week, it seems. Um, You've either got to have something that makes people remember your event being crazy like TNT does with their wrestling theme or Bison having that Oklahoma feel or like we do with Alamo where everything's based on the War of Texian Revolution. Um, You've just got to have something that makes people associate your tournament with where you are and who you are and kind of sets the tone so that when they come, they already kind of know what they can expect from it.
4: I think actually, in many ways, the name doesn't even matter, right? But what you're talking about is the brand. And the brand is much more than a name. It's fine that you've got a name and you stick to that name. But actually, it's the um, kind of like you're talking about, the mythos behind that event that grows. Like an event called TNT, it means nothing. But when you say TNT and you think, ah, it's got the rings and it's the wrestling and the fact that it's Todd's Nashville Tournament is almost unimportant. Right. But actually what you're talking about is building up a brand over years and keeping at it and and staying consistent, right?
5: Another thing with that consistency is and that for Crossroads, we've kind of done this every year. We've always been this last weekend of September. That's been our consistent thing. So everybody knows if they need vacation time, whatever, every year. Last month, last weekend of September, that's Crossroads weekend, and we've we've had that since the very get go, and it's been consistent all the way through.
4: One of the things I'm interested in, because coming from the UK, we're kind of dominated by one day tournaments here, and we talked a little bit about why that is in in the UK podcast. I hear a lot, you know, on Facebook and through Countercharge and various uh, media outlets about the big two day tournaments in the US. We tend to hear very little about one days. So why do you think two day tournaments are, are so attractive over there? What why, why do they bring in the players do you think one day still have a place and do two day tournaments do you think they exclude some of the less experienced players is it daunting for people to turn up to like a massive event full of people they don't know i can tackle this first
7: um i think the place for the two day tournaments is it's a destination it's an experience right like uh people can set a set aside one or two tournaments a year to go to or more if they have the time they can go and really experience kind of The whole tabletop scene experience going to see their friends that they see a couple times a year and and really get down to the best players with the best lists in the best rooms and find out who's the best. And I think that's kind of the one of the purposes of the two day tournaments. I run a lot of one day tournaments. I think that those are mainly meant to grow the communities and to find Players that are in your local FLGS that might just walk in one day and see, oh, you got 10 people playing a King's of War tournament. What's King's of War? And then you get to open that dialogue. You get new people in. And then you kind of sh- shove them back towards the two-day events that help them, I guess, grow. And going back to do two-day tournaments exclude less experienced players, I think initially, yes. I think anytime you go outside your comfort zone, it's kind of scary but once you get in there and realize that this community is so good, like good in the in the correct sense of the word, like people help each other, people help with hobby, and there's tons of paint chats and different things you can join. That I don't know, that was something that stuck out to me coming from other game systems, that the Kings of War community is, is very accepting and for the most part, good dudes and ladies.
5: Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I think you're right on there. Anybody that goes to their first two-day grand tournament, Right after the, the feedback is almost consistently, this is awesome. I can't believe I waited this long to do it. I'll be back. I'll do this all the time now. I think it's just an eye-opening experience for those that the, the first-timers because of the community.
2: I think the problem you run into in America is we're so spread out. Um, apart from the tournament I run, if I want to go to my next tournament, I'm driving three to four hours just to get there. And it's really hard for me to do that for a one day where I'm coming home at the end of the night and I've gotten three or four games in. I'm exhausted by the end of it. Some people are possibly drinking heavily. Um, So it makes more sense. It's easier actually for me as a player to get off an entire weekend than it is to say, hey, I'm going to be out all day Saturday. Um, So I think the U.S. has kind of moved towards the two days because it's easier to to just run away with the guys for a weekend than it is to try and, and work in something like you would for a store tournament here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll agree the, pretty much with most of those statements there, I would say the one thing with the reasons that we see so much less about the one days is because the two days are such a uh, big ordeals, such big events and the one day tournaments, uh, they do grow the local, but because we've got so many people that travel from across Uh, the US and it is such a a big time commitment that it's really hard to you know drive eight hours 10 hours to a one day uh, and you know not get the full experience out of it and so that's why you probably hear and see so so few of those Uh, and as far as being a two-day event being new guy friendly I would say I I haven't been to a tournament yet that isn't uh, new guy friendly Uh, Bison Brawl is a great example that i have quite a few uh new players that are going to be at this tournament and i think they're going to be pleasantly surprised how open this community is how enjoyable they are and how uh, inviting they are going to be with uh just understanding that they're new they're not just going to come to get their stuff kicked in that it's it's really an experience it's really all about just having a lot of fun and,
4: and enjoying the game right so perhaps it's not that there aren't one-day tournaments out there we're just perhaps not talking about them as much because like you say they tend to be quite local things so the message to people if they're listening to this and thinking uh, i'm not sure i can you know i can get the time away from home or but you know there are one-day tournaments and they're probably quite close to you so you know have a little search around in your regional groups and have a look around and 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 ask questions and they will be out there and then if you like them, then you can graduate on to the, to the bigger tournaments. But there's no reason to not go to those bigger tournaments just because you're a new player, right? Absolutely. So uh, the organization that goes into a two-day event is 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 quite extensive. There's a lot to do. Do you tie, do you guys tend to, to plump for the five games or the six games? How you know? What's the pros and what's the cons with regards to the guys that are traveling so far to come to your big events?
2: I get in this argument with people a lot. I know people love playing six games. I'm more of a fan of a more laid-back five-game environment. I'm getting a little older it interferes with my drinking by game forum take going to the bathroom too often i'm a big fan of the five gamers um six just by the end of it i am so exhausted all i want to do is curl up and sleep
5: so i think that's a lot about your environment right and who the attendees are going to be at your event in the northeast region here i think everybody universally feels five games is the right is the right amount because Typically, our our events are more about the hangout than the games, and people want that extra time just to do whatever, just do board gaming in the evenings, lots of drinking, <laughs> having just having a general good time. So that six game kind of cuts into friend time, and so they, that's kind, kind of a thing. It's like nobody wants to go and play a six game tournament up here in the Northeast, and I know that's different in other regions.
6: Five games, six games. Uh, yeah, it depends. Like Corey said, a lot of on your your your. Your meta, you know what people think. Well, not really the meta, but what people, how people like to do things in in your area. It also matters the number of players. The first Mountaineer, we only had 20 players, and I made the mistake of doing six games, and it was just. It was really draining for everybody. I mean, we still had a great time, but uh, that was one of like those the universal feedback that everybody said was like you know playing six games. It it took a lot out of everybody, and it also when you had only twenty people, it also kind of resulted in some kind of funky uh, results toward the end. If you have a, a larger amount of players, that's something that you can entertain. Um, I I'm in favor of. Doing up a poll asking people what they would like to do, uh, it seems to be that here in the Mid Atlantic we we kind of have a mix. We haven't actually had a tournament that's required six players six uh, event uh, games, but um, people seem to be open to the idea. Like Corey said, a lot of a lot of going to these events is the hangout and the social aspect, and you have to be aware that if you go to six games, you you are taking several hours away from from that. Post, uh, you know, the the post game hangout sessions on Saturday. And you're also going to tire people out.
7: Yeah, and heaven forbid people that come pretty far, uh, if you end up going long on the second day, they're having to travel back and they're beat. Nobody gets to experience all the joys of going out and drinking with their friends the night before. I know at some point the six six games necessary for tiebreaker purposes, but I think it's once you get past like sixty players, or maybe it's sixty four players, something like that.
5: Right, right. Once you get to sixty four players, then you're you're kinda like if you want to have one true undefeated player, you've gotta you should go to that sixth game. Again, I think it just matters how competitive your scene is, right? If the majority of your players at your event are like I'm here for a competitive event, and I just want to have that one true winner. Sure, then that sixth game makes sense. But sometimes, I don't know, up here from what I've seen, maybe 20% of the people come to a tournament thinking, I have a realistic shot to win this tournament, and that's one of the big reasons I'm here. The other 80% are there to have a good time and hang out for the weekend. And that, that other 80% makes up the, the huge volume of your, your tournament going. So you really are trying to make an event to please everybody. That 80%
7: matters. <laughs> Yeah, you need the chaff, so to speak. Chaff, uh, yeah, yeah you, but you really do and, it. Like, and, a, and a lot of those people, they don't care about winning. And that's awesome. And they're there to support the community and do – their hobby that they love and i think that we should really try to encourage that and not burn them out if possible
5: i agree i agree and even our
4: competitive players are like yeah, i don't care that much that i want to play a mm-hmm. game so that five games it does allow that a little bit more time doesn't it does that does everyone still agree that even with that case uh, clocks are still a must and you know how much time do you give to each of your games i've seen anything from like 45 minutes up to more than an hour so how do you balance that with a with like a six game versus a five game
2: I think clocks have a value in certain players who have trouble making a schedule. Uh, They give teeth a TO can use if people are running long, because especially game one into game two, uh, the first game on Sunday into the second game on Sunday, you can throw the entire thing off by one person not being able to turn in a sheet on time. So it's nice to have the threat of clocks, but I don't think they're really necessary. I think a lot of TOs can budget time a little bit better i mean in the u.s we have two days so you're there all weekend whether you wanted to be or not you can make those games go as long as you want as long as you make sure there's time for people to have breaks there's time for people to have food there's time for people to go to dinner you know the wives that are coming afterwards know when they're going to be free but as tos we can make games go longer if we think clocks are an issue that said usually people are done 10 to 15 minutes early, in my experience. So they're not needed except for one or two guys that just have massive, massive armies or are really thinking through uh, early game or late game moods and are having trouble deciding which to go with, in which case a clock helps them make that decision faster and kind of
7: put some pressure on them, which can win or lose you a game sometimes. So I've gone back and forth on the use of clocks over my three years of running events, and where I've settled now is... The use of clocks 100% prevents so many issues and potential conflicts that I'm more in favor of clocks on every table than not. And if if you and your opponent agree not to use clocks, that's fine, with the caveat that I don't want to hear any complaints about somebody playing long or somebody playing uh, to the clock advantage. But as soon as you introduce a clock and you allow the, each player to have a set amount of time and they both get the set correct amount of time – then there's none of those uncomfortable conversations of my opponent was slow playing, that's the only reason I lost, or we ended at the bottom of round three. Like Nobody wants to end a game there. That that sucks. So I think what I've done moving forward is the top six or seven tables, it's mandatory, and then everyone else can just kind of figure it out if they want.
5: I'm a big fan of the clocks, right? I think just from a tournament organizer perspective, it keeps everything so clean everything's on schedule you don't have games that run a little late or like you said somebody that didn't get all of their turns in. it just keeps it very clean eliminates any of the potential arguments or issues you might have over the course of an event and i've been to events where the clocks are optional even then i think most players by the end of the event are thinking to themselves i wish i'd used clocks for every single one
7: of my games yeah, and if you're if you're a newer player and it's intimidating, the best thing you can do is play with them. And if you're an experienced player and you're trying to convince a new player to use them, I think it's as simple as saying, "Hey, this is for me. I'm trying to learn. You know, I, this is I'm, well, technically, it's for both of us. I want to make sure that each of us get the appropriate amount of time. Maybe I have a trash army or an army that takes a lot of time, and I want to make sure that you get the same amount of time that I get. Kind of put it back on yourself."
5: Right. And I'm a I'm a typically slow player. I almost always have less than five minutes left on my clock and I want that clock just to keep myself honest and make sure that I'm not (laughs) going over the the allotted time limit
7: for me. And if you don't like people don't realize how long they take. I didn't until I started playing with a clock and realized, oh man, I'm pretty much pushing out the ninety minutes or
6: whatever every single time. And it's important to know. In addition to the the clocks, I I I think we still need you know, do they have that established round time? Like, if you do require clocks, you can't—you can't even really just use the clocks for the round time. Uh, we found out, in fact, at the last Mountaineer, we we all almost two or three rounds. We had, you know, one table that had paused the clock a couple of times for some rules questions. Uh, there was one dispute that we had to settle, and so you, you also have to have that. Uh, You have to have that round time to make sure everything's going on time, especially on, you know, for Sunday for when people have to start driving home.
1: I'm kind of in the minority here. I know I've gotten in numerous arguments about this. Um, I I don't think clocks are necessary. I've been to numerous tournaments where the TO is doing a great job of warning people. Um, I went to uh, some of the West Coast tournaments and somebody had this great idea of just incentivizing Not slow playing. It's that simple, and so you get extra points if you make it past a certain round, and that stops those people from trying to go to to just go to three, go to four, and then calling it good. And stops the slow play. I understand the tos have to keep things on target, but if they're warning people and they're letting people know. I've I've found the stress for the new players is is pretty high up there, especially people that aren't familiar with playing. Even if they do go to tournaments and they play on the clocks, a lot of times they do not play when they're just casually playing. It's all about having fun. So my tournament's not going to have clocks. I've made it optional. I know that there's a few hardcore people from Texas that will be using it, but I think that I'll be just – Keeping everybody involved and um, making sure that there's a, a tournament point for getting to that place in each game is going to be enough to incentivize
7: everybody. So that's an interesting perspective. I'd never thought about that.
1: Yeah, I think it was Dan Miner. I think was the one that uh, I talked to that had originally discussed that. Where I, if you uh, every player that makes it to to turn six, they get a, a tournament point. It's the way it works. And so that's figured into the overall equation of everything. You're you're keeping track, you're making the announcements as a TO saying, hey, there's thirty minutes left, there's fifteen minutes left, there's of course. And then and if, if somebody's at the uh you know, the top of round six, well then you're gonna finish the, the bottom of round six is what it equates out to. So uh, getting to that place and making it even for both players, that's the most important part. And yeah, they could be slow playing, but if they're getting there, those hardcore people, the people that even consider slow playing, which is very, very minor in our community. I, I can name on one hand maybe the people that try to slow play. It's, That's great. I mean, it, it's one of those things where – it
7: you're giving them a reason they don't want to lose those points. So they're not going to slow play. So, and again, going back to the TO going through and making sure that everyone's aware of the time. I think you run both clocks, right? You run the chess clocks and then you run the tournament round clock. I always make an announcement with about 15 minutes left in the round to not start another t- set of turns. Um, unless with the caveat, unless you can finish in 15 minutes, like if there's a 500 points on the table and you're playing the sixth round, I guess that's okay. Um, that tends to help as well.
5: Yeah, I do the same thing. I keep the round clock running along with the, the chess clocks.
4: What's the right points level for a tournament? This is a big topic. You know, the standard we used to see in the US, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not in the US, used to be 2250, but I've seen a lot more tournaments being published. Uh, this year with like 2300, and some of that was because there was extra items people wanted to test out. Over here in the UK, we seem to be set at 2000. And as I understand it, a lot of the play testing for each of the the, uh, Clash of Kings packs happened at 2000. So why do you think the U.S. has pushed to 2250? And uh, how do you guys decide how you want to run your tournaments?
2: I think point levels is something that's very personal to TOs. Uh, Some of them put a lot of thought into it. I know Alamo, we split point levels. You play uh, Saturday at 1995, and then you play Sunday at 2500, a unique, almost War Machine kind of feel. Um, because you're altering your tactics based on which day it is. You might have chaff, you might have hammer units that you're not going to have on Saturday. I don't think there's a right answer to it, uh, as long as your players are happy with it, and if they're not, they don't show up. Anywhere in the 1500 to 2500 range is probably fine. Anything bigger than that, your games are probably going to run really long, and it's going to be a problem. Anything smaller than that, and I mean, it's good for a one day. You can get a lot of games through it, but it's not really what guys are looking for in a grand tournament kind of environment where we want bigger massed battles.
5: Well, the clear answer is bigger is better. That's exactly (laughs) what I was going to (laughs) say. But I also, I I think we have a a lot of diverse tournaments, right? As far as the points levels concerned, I've seen anywhere from 1950 up to 2,500. And I think just there's a, there's an event that fits everybody's tastes. Right. I think those different varying point levels are attractive just because you get to do different things.
7: Yeah, and certain armies really start to open up when you get into the higher point totals. I think ogres are a good example of that, where they just are able to bring a little more to the table. Plus, you get all the bells and whistles when you get over 2,000. But I think, like anything, it's up to the TO and the area. I've always threatened a 1,000-point tournament with nine rounds or something like that, just to see what would change. <laughs> nice,
5: nice. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, It does, it does change who gets what and how competitive different lists are that's a really good point
1: i've seen a quite a bit of movement over to the 1995 point range this last year uh just because of the the rule of three and, and things of that nature so but yeah it, it it comes down to what's the to want to do what's the area want to do and being able to i mean ultimately we're just a bunch of people shoving toys across the table and tossing a bunch of dice. And everybody loves playing
7: with toys. So that's yeah, why he's it's al- on. It's almost like the point totals can be a tournament comp. And that going to like 1950 prevents a lot of spam or cheap casters or things like that. Absolutely.
3: We have an event come up here in the southeast called The Forge. They're doing
7: 2750. It's madness. It's Freaking madness, man. That's,
3: that's crazy. And it's kind of a farewell to the second edition. So I'm really excited to see the turnout that Nathan gets and to see how it is to play. That I mean, that's like you mentioned, I think the Ogres will do great at 2750. So it's going to be a fun time.
7: Is Crucible the only 2,000 point tournament in the Southeast?
3: I think it is now. Yeah. Everything's moved up higher. Hilarious. Forge last year was 1850. And then yeah. this year, 2750. So
4: it's an argument, isn't there? The, the, um, it's easier isn't it the more points you got the more toys you can take and some of the arguments i've seen for like lower pointed tournaments is that you have to be really strategic in what you're taking but like you said it does favor some armies so i played in a 1600 point tournament it's incredibly difficult to fit some armies into 1600 points but you have to be quite careful about you taking it make it adds a, a an extra layer of list building strategy in some ways so let's talk about uh, uh makeup of your tournament so Some guys seem to go to town with special characters, you know, either monsters or individuals. And I've seen some hideously overpowered monsters that kind of really change the makeup of the game. So are you guys in favor of special characters? Uh, And how do you kind of balance those? What's some guidelines for making the right kind of character?
2: I think using monsters and using characters or special rules or special spells is a great way to add flavor to an event, uh, especially if it's struggling to come up with an identity. Alamo has done like a giant equivalent back when we were a Warhammer tournament that had special rules about being drunk and falling over. Um, and it was a lot of fun. You run into issues with uh, balance unless the TO has a, a dedicated crew of people that can help him test He has every army and knows mathematically how it's going to fit into every list Uh, sometimes you can make really finicky things happen if you don't pay close attention to that but i think it's a fun way to make the event pop and in theory everyone's got access to the same characters so it doesn't overbalance things too much for the most part Uh, i think it's a fun way
7: i'm guilty as charged here crucible does have a monster that uh, you can use i think the biggest thing is when you do go that route and you collect You start to go customize characters or monsters that you need to balance off of an existing unit. I always go off of something that is similar in stats, and that way you don't get too skewed with super overpowered. And then I always bounce it off people that in the community are more experienced players. Uh, That way you can say, hey, is this game breaking or will it be fun? and that also kind of ties back into the theme of events and things like that. Crucible is a Halloween-themed event, so having monsters kind of makes sense. Uh, and then you get the hobbyers, the people that love to hobby, can get into um, something months in advance that's specific to a tournament, and they can start sharing it. And that goes back to you know any type of publicity is good publicity, and I'm all for it.
5: Yeah, I think they add a cool theme aspect to any of that. But I think you do need to be really careful about how you balance it, right? Because you don't want the end result to be something about how unbalanced your addition to the event was, right? You want to, say, like you said, the hobby aspect. People driving, sharing their pictures of what they're building up for the event, not just how it played out in the event as a whole. I don't want, think you want that to be the focus.
6: Yeah, I like the theme aspect of them. I originally started Mountaineer. I think we were starting to do, see a lot of those uh, themed characters, units, sponsors, things like that. So when I when I started, I was like, you know, I'm actually just gonna keep it very standard, and uh, that made it, in my eyes, a little bit different for the for the region at the time, or maybe not the region, but for the the wider community. Um, and so I think I'm probably gonna keep that, though. Now that you know the name is Mountaineer, lately I've been thinking like maybe next year I might add in a a character, you know, an individual the Mountaineer that everybody could feel, just because it feels like. That something easy to tie into the name, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I I will probably have to reach out to a couple of you guys who have been doing it to to make sure that it's it's balanced because that's that's a big concern of mine.
3: Well, for Blue Seed Raw, we went a different route, which was we didn't give you a free anything. We just took something that was already in your list that you got to decide which hero it was and gave them a little bit, you know, maybe they they got inspiring. And what that did was that incentivized taking a unit that didn't already have inspiring because now you get it for free. Um, And I know, Brian, you you go a different route, which is not a character, but you're doing something with an actual magical artifact.
1: So uh, we're basically adding an extra crystal pendant of retribution. Uh, It's called the bison chip of retribution and uh, we're going to have in everybody's little goodie bags that we're giving away, uh, a little piece of poop, and they can put that on their unit to signify what it is. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And and it it explodes. So it's surprising how something, it's a 50-point item that I don't think gets taken quite a bit because it is 50 points. And so just having the extra ability for everybody to play that, I've seen some ridiculous lists where everybody's like, well, now I can take, two of these exploding things, I'm going to build an entire list around it and really seeing that kind of difference in, in uh, play style, different in lists uh, has been super entertaining. And then I think it's going to make for some great uh, matchups for some great memorable games. And I've also designed one of my scenarios around the, the magic item as well, or, uh, well, this will be out afterwards. So uh, it's it's going to cause some some havoc and there'll be some movement of that item around and and really cause a hot mess in gameplay. <laughs> so I was going to say, uh, one of the events here in the Mid-Atlantic, the Keystone GT,
5: they did something even different beyond a character or monster. They allowed certain... You, you could nominate an infantry unit that would get a certain bonus throughout the course of the, the game and you had to pick that bonus before the tournament nominated. But some of the bonuses were really... Really, quite game changing. And so they had to change list builds. I mean, we saw, I think, seven elf armies, almost all of them had the uh, green ladies formation there because they could have regenerating spearmen with defense five. <laughs> so there's some.
7: Ugh. <laughs> yeah,
5: Ugh is right, right? So, I mean, it was definitely interesting and it had a, a great interplay in the event. But I think there's some things you got to kind of be careful about when you go that route.
7: Yeah, and I think the positives of these. Uh, small changes completely outweigh the negatives, the potential negatives, and it just adds to the hobby and to the games.
4: Yeah, flavor. So you mentioned scenarios a little bit then. Are are there any scenarios that you guys absolutely do not take to tournaments? You know, it is ridiculous to have that in a tournament because it's unbalanced. Are there any that are are must-haves? And kind of what restrictions do you have to impose?
7: I typically, um, and have been doing this for two years now since Clash of Kings 2018, I I just select randomly straight from the book. I mean, they're all relatively balanced. It's always hilarious when you throw a kill out there on people because they <laughs> they don't uh, or they they got so used to not playing kill that now it's uh, it's interesting
5: to see. It is incredibly difficult to play kill now. <laughs> it yeah. really is. Uh, yeah, I use most of the book scenarios. The only one that I never really used was the one from Clash of Kings twenty eighteen that where you had the two uh, terrain pieces that were. Scenario objectives—that was the only one I really didn't like and never really used.
7: Yeah, it's always yes. tricky. Any, anytime you get a scenario with like three or four paragraphs that have to explain it, a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the players are like, "What?"
6: Right. That scenario that Corey mentioned—that was from t- the current lineup. I think all the scenarios are fine, um, and I I randomly do it as well, just like Cody. We haven't played Kill, but 2018, I did that, and we randomly selected that that terrain scenario and i don't think anybody in our like almost 40 players i don't think anybody knew what it was uh and so that was kind of a problem we have pretty standardized terrain because we're pulling from a game store and even then though you know some of the pieces were a little bit larger which that that changes the gameplay so them removing that scenario that was that was that was pretty good for competitive play and probably i should have uh taken that off of the list of
4: possible scenarios to play so we've seen a lot of uh, U.S. tournaments where they write their own scenarios, and I think, Brian, you mentioned that you, you you tweet one of the scenarios yourself. What's the risk with writing your own scenarios? We've seen some things like the Texas Twister scenario, stuff like that, and some some uh, T.O. written scenarios have made it into the book. Some some of the in the UK uh, T.O. The, the the podcast, the kind of universal view was don't. Don't write your own scenarios because it's a nightmare. They're unbalanced, blah 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 blah. But I see that a lot more in U.S. tournaments. Do you guys? Do you guys go for that? What's your opinion? I see a lot more of that, and I, I really think it comes
1: down to the the competitiveness of of people. I think the. The people that are very competitive, yeah, it's a little upsetting to them. Um, but honestly, I would say that that's probably the like, like they were stating earlier. It's the minority of the people that come to these tournaments. The people that are coming are coming to socialize, or coming to have fun. They're they're yes, they they want to make qualifiers but they understand that this game is all about change. You're going to have to be able to come and go with the flow of things. The points are going to change from 1995 all the way up to like 2,500. Um, There's going to be different scenarios, and that just makes you a better player. And so they understand that 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 aspect of it is what gives them that competitive edge. And the only thing that I have against custom scenarios is – if it's just so complicated that people don't want to play it. And a lot of times just feedback at the end of the tournament um, helps out in that. And I, I'm doing just caught 2019 scenarios for my tournament. And then I'm tweaking it with one extra rule. Um, I have one scenario that has two rules. It's the last game in the tournament, just because I think, um, again, having new players, having people involved by the end of the tournament, they're used to the custom scenarios, and so having just two extra rules as opposed to one extra rule is, is simple enough to, to go with. You walk into some of these um, – Lone Wolf's a, a great example. They they love their custom scenarios, and as a new player, most of it I, I was able to understand, but then you walk into something like Texas Hold'em and you're ready to just slit your wrist because that's a hot mess of, of – <laughs> It, you're you're working on like four or five different goals that are all random and you just can't keep track of it all. And you're like, this is – I have no idea what's going on. So you you definitely want to keep an eye on like the balancing uh, issues of it. Bounce the ideas off a few other TOs and uh, get their opinion on it. I tweaked one of my scenarios because I bounced off a few other TOs at the time. and And I think it's going to turn out for the better because of that
2: there's a good opportunity for TOs to write their own scenarios and play through those. Uh, you can do a good job defining uh, how a tournament feels by playing scenarios you've never played before and making players think in different ways than they've done before. Uh, Bayou Battles one year did a game where you basically were playing soccer on a Kings of Warfield, and you could kill your opponent. But really, how many goals you scored determined whether or not you won the game. And a lot of people really liked the sideways thinking of it, and a lot of people really hated that their broken list was no better at kicking a ball across the field as that goblin rabble across the table from it.
5: Yeah, I think that's that's an important aspect, right? Because if you're doing something unique at your event, that's what it's known for, it might restrict or cause some players to rethink whether they're going to travel to that event right say oh man i don't know if i'm ready for something like that or maybe i'm at a disadvantage because i'm not used to playing those types of funky scenarios so it might have some interaction with the the people that do end up attending your event
3: when you mess with scenarios it has some impact on new players right at blue sea brawl we try to keep the scenarios vanilla so that new newer players wouldn't have worry about it. They've already seen the ones in the book and they know how to play them, and it was just more of the same. So, obviously, whatever you do with scenarios is going to impact, I think to Corey's point, who's going to come to your event.
5: And Mantic's done a really good job with the scenarios. I mean, I I enjoy almost all of them. I think they do a good job of um, emphasizing different aspects of the game. So I'm a big fan of what's already out there too. Right,
4: and the principle of the the book scenarios is they've been play-tested to death, right? That's what the rules committee is there for. I think one of the nice things that can be done is to add Little extra tweaks, right? So like Brian was saying, so little extra tweaks to scenarios or even tournament tweaks. So through the tournament, there's extra goals that you can go for, right? So maybe if the amount of units you kill with range or something like like little extra points, you can just gather through extra objectives throughout the tournament. That can be a way to actually introduce some fun variation without introducing game changing or breaking uh, new scenario concepts.
5: Yeah, yeah, I like those little little objectives.
3: Bonus objectives are also a way to make things mutually exclusive from the scenario where you can have things for the person that's losing the game. Here's something you can do. Even though you're going to lose the scenario, here's some points you can score.
1: When I was looking to tweak my, my uh, scenarios, the one thing that I pulled from was the... The cards that Mantic put out, the little objective cards—they've got the extra objectives, they have the uh, extra modifiers that are out there—and I'm like, well, somebody's already play tested these, somebody's already been working with these, and so I, if I can find ones that kind of fit into the theme, what I'm going for with the tournament, there's been a little bit of balancing that have already been done in that, so you can just kind of work with those within those cards, and it was it was a great starting place for me on uh, most of my little tweaks that I was doing to
7: the
4: scenarios. Those were uh, Nick Williams's Battlefield cards, right? They uh, were made into a pack. I think those are really fun to play with,
7: yeah. Correct,
4: yeah, absolutely.
7: And going back to kind of tying in special scenarios that aren't game-breaking with special characters, you can always have like a set thing of have your special character or monster charge the opposing special monster for one point, or if you kill the other character, et cetera, et cetera, you get three points, something like that, where you're not affecting kind of the whole... Uh, scenario you're just kind of adding this little thing inside of it it's not you don't really need to balance
5: so one of the things that i've seen a couple of events up here in the northeast do and i think it's because almost all of the events use uh, terrain maps for each round is that they've started creating the maps specifically with the scenarios in mind i know unplugged and then the king beyond the wall tournament both did this where each scenario and each map for the round was made together right they picked the scenario and then made a map that they wanted to play that they thought would be interesting with that scenario and i actually i really enjoyed that i thought they added a lot to the game
3: and if you're playing dominate you probably don't want to have a 12 inch piece of blocking terrain right in the middle of the table
5: right but then they would throw some walls near the middle of the table just so maybe pathfinder armies didn't have such a a big advantage in the dominate scenario which was i mean they were as a to if you're really thinking about it and how you want to that um that particular scenario to play out that's awesome and even even going as far as to um placing the objectives in certain scenarios like pillage the objectives are already pre-placed so you didn't have the the option of putting them where you wanted they were already on the table and you had to figure out how to go get them and that was interplayed again with how the terrain was placed out
4: we talked a little bit about points there and actually um scoring systems is kind of a a perennial topic we see a lot of buzz about Um, what are the main systems currently used across the U.S., and, and what difference do you think they make? So, you know, there's the typical kind of uh, soccer win-loss draw. You've got Blackjack, which came from Australia originally. There's the Northern Kings. There's 20 nil. Uh, how do you guys decide, and what difference does it make, you think?
2: Apart from scenarios, I think I put the most thought of my tournament into how scoring works between balancing wins, losses, draws, variations between them with soft scores, I am a proponent of the if you got tabled, you may not get any points strategy of thinking because it makes a win matter that much more. And it makes you, if you're down but not out, it makes it worth scrapping for those one or two extra units you might be able to focus and clear off. And then suddenly your 18-2 loss is a 15-5 and you're not nearly as bad off as you would have been before. Whereas in a tournament where it's a 16 for a win, 8 for a loss, uh, draw, 4 for a loss, if you're losing, you can just mail it in and not have reasons to keep playing once the game pivots hard in your favor or away from you. So I kind of like the sliding scale.
6: I've been leaving it up to the players. The the first year, we did not. The first year, we used something that in the area we'd been doing. Um, the guys up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, had been doing it for the Keystone GT that year, and they did it for some one-day. So I did some tweaks, and we used that. But uh, the next year... I believe we did a we did a poll and we, we moved over to Blackjack to give that a try and then this year we did another poll and we moved over to the Northern Kings method and I, I kind of like that being able to switch around try out different things it gives people a chance to, to try out different scoring methods and see how you know see how that changes the gameplay I mean you, I get the impression that if we did the same thing that they would then start to a, a, adjust their list. Because I heard a lot of con- uh, talks over the, the weekend, people saying, well, you know, it doesn't really matter if you do this. So, you know, this is what, you know, this is what I would have taken and so, so forth. But if we change it up every time, that gives them a chance to experience it without really getting a chance to, to really customize their list based off of the scoring method. So I've, I've liked being able to switch it up like that and just based off of what people want to play.
7: Yeah, I've... um I've tried a lot. I've tried, I think, all of these except for the Northern Kings. Um, I know some people have tried that locally, but uh, I tend to be in the blackjack scoring system camp currently. One, it's familiar to me, and I I understand the rules of it. And two, it it encourages uh, play from the beginning to the end of the game. Uh, and doesn't skew as badly if you get uh, stomped, in my opinion.
1: I don't have a preference for the other. I, I personally for blackjack and it's just because it's it to me it's the ease of scoring as a player. TOIs, I 20, uh you know blackjack, any of that type of stuff, as long as it's it's on the piece of paper and uh, people are, aren't asking you a lot of questions and it's understandable for new players. I, I I think it's just up to personal preference honestly. I like blackjack though.
5: Yeah, I think they all have different merits and I'm glad that different events use the different variety of scoring systems, because I do think they they change it up and they each add something different to the game.
3: I also think it's really interesting that there's an evolution, right? Northern Kings comes out. I'm sure someone will take, you know, Nick's baby and he, they will change it and they'll make it better. And it just it's it's fun to see the various systems are an amalgamation of what's come before, and so it's exciting to, to think about what's going to come down the road.
4: Your scoring system is affected by uh, how you're balancing scores across, right? So. I think the difference in the UK and the reason Northern Kings has taken off so much is because we don't have hobby scores, right? So it's just on battle and Northern King tends to, it gives something to players who are losing because they can gain points. So at, at the risk of making this podcast, you know, a hundred hours long, let's, let's, let's touch on soft scores. They're pretty pervasive. I don't tend to see many just battle events in the U S but what's the right balance of, of battle, you know, pain and sportsmanship, uh, do you think soft scores, particularly paint, do you think it, it is discouraging to new players? Do you go for a rubric? Do you go for a judge? Talk to me about soft. Educate this this uh, you know barbarian foreigner on the beauty of soft. Incoming seventeen hour podcast. Here, here, we here we go. Here we go. I'm a, I'm a soft score
1: junkie. I am not good at this game when it comes to strategizing and battle and everything else. I honestly, I'm I'm just there to have fun and socialize, and so I love sportsmanship scores. I love paint scores. I understand that it's you have to base it off of your region, and you need to base it off of the attendees that are coming. So understand that you're you're going to have some more hardcore players if that's what's going on in in your meta, or understand if you're going to have a, a lot more new players. Um, I tried to balance mine a little bit more toward battle, but I still kept it pretty heavy in the in the paint and the sports aspect because. Uh, at the end of the day, that's who I want coming to the tournament. I I don't want somebody that's just coming there to kick out of somebody. I want them there to, to, come there and and have a good time and 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 be inviting to new players and i've i've enjoyed i've got a a couple of new players that they've been scrambling for the last few months trying to get prepared for this tournament it's been very enjoyable seeing them progress as as players progress their hobby just to get ready for this tournament and if there was no you know paint scores then you know they would probably show up with gray models and and uh uh, I think it, it helps out this hobby in general to have the sports and to have the, the the paint, to have those soft scores because at the end of the day, that's who we want playing this game.
2: For soft scores, I think they, they provide a very important part of the game that people that have been playing for a long time don't think about. Uh, there's two things as a player that turn me off from wanting to play a game. One of them is seeing bare plastic on the table across from me because it tells me my opponent hasn't put any time into wanting the experience to be good for me. He's just playing with lists. He's throwing whatever models he wants out there. He can't even be bothered to put paint in it or to commit to it. And I know I'm not going to enjoy that game. And the other one is my opponent is a and sportsmanship is a big stick that the TO can hit those people with to go, hey, you're making this bad for other players. You shouldn't do that. And it's also a small carrot that you can dangle in front of them. We try and balance really carefully win-loss versus paint versus sportsmanship. We do a sliding scale on sportsmanship in, at the Alamo, and I think Lone Wolf does it as well, where one good game vote is worth a certain number of points. Two good game votes is worth slightly more points. Three is worth a lot. Four is worth a ton. Because the theory is, if four out of your five opponents had the best game of their tournament against you, Those four people are more likely to come back because you are awesome. Um, And it happens very rarely. I only think there's been a handful of times we've gotten four or five first place uh sportsmanship votes but it's worth rewarding those people that put that extra effort into making sure your opponent is having fun too because that's what builds a community and that's what makes people want to come back and play
5: so i'll second that right i think the soft scores really are important because again it does emphasize the type of people we want playing the game and the type of people we want in the community um, i'll think I'll go back to when we first switched over to Kings of War for Crossroads. We did de-emphasize paint a little bit that first uh, that first event because it was so daunting for people to try and say, oh, i got to get a new army ready, and how do I do that? So we really kind of took away a lot of the, the paint scoring and the painting requirements from Crossroads that first Kings of War year just to encourage new players, people that were trying to get into the game, to come and play and see what a tournament could be like under Kings of War. But then... After that, we reintroduced the the standard paint paint scoring and paint requirements that we've had for all of the events. As far as what the the right um, percentage of paint scores and uh, sports scores compared to battle are, more about your spread of what the what the points are, right? And so we've had a lot of discussion up here in the Northeast with other To's about what what do you want to get out of your uh, your soft score as a part as a part of the overall tournament scoring. And for us, paint scoring especially, what we've kind of come to an agreement with is that we'd like maybe the difference from your worst painted army in the room, which would be like a bad army, let's say, to the best painted army in the room to be worth about a wins worth of point differential and so typically your average middle of the road gt army then to your top tier best painted army in the room should be from a tie to a win so it's enough to kind of make up a tie's worth of difference um, against that best painted army in the room uh sports scores i think are a little different because i don't necessarily want to see a huge difference in range of sports scores. Just, and that's just my feelings on the community we have up here because there are like everybody up here is an awesome person to play against. I don't think we have anybody that I would typically tend to see as a person that scores typically low sports scores. So I don't want to see a big range of sports scores. So typically it's just a few points here and there differential just based on how people enjoy their games or not, or if there are any issues during their games.
4: But right, before yeah. we go into sports scores, can I can I quickly just ask, you know, something i've I've been struggling to understand is the difference between a paint score and a hobby score. So, our Clash of Kings, for example, there is a, it's a best army award. It's not a best painted army. It's a best army, and that's judged based on... Actually, I have no idea how it's judged, but, um, (laughs) you know, there are people who are extraordinary painters, and there are people who are extraordinary or ambitious modelers, and you kind of want to reward both aspects. So do you guys do that with a rubric? Do you have a a guy wandering around saying, I like this army the best? how How do you differentiate that?
7: So I can tackle this. I can just speak to the way that I like to run my tournaments, but in particular... I like to use kind of everything that you just outlined. Typically, I have a general player-determined painting checklist that funnels each army into a certain category. It'd be... You know, unpainted models, period, gives you zero points in paint. And then bare minimum painted gives you 15 points. Standard GT Army, which is, you know, dry brushing and highlighting, gives you, say, 20 points. And then a well executed GT Army would be 25 points, et cetera. Then uh, at the end of the tournament, I take all the well executed GT Armies that are decent and then have our local GT painter, we have a guy that kind of paints and gives painting lessons and tutorials at the, at the convention, come by and judge just on skill alone those armies to find out who the quote-unquote best painted is. But then also at the end, I have a player's choice award, which is essentially the hobby, which is what I think you outlined. And, and the way that I like to describe it to the players before they do that vote is this is the army that you'd steal if you could like this is the one that wowed you it might not be the best painted but it's got cool water effects or a cool theme something like that and that way you kind of you kind of encourage the flashier side of the hobby and then the technical side as well
5: right and i like having both as well i do the same thing have a player's choice which is like whatever you like whatever you love to see that's your vote and then we also have like the best painted for the, the technical award on that side
2: As far as paint scoring goes, anyone that has ever talked with me for any amount of time knows that I am a man with strong opinions about paint score. Now, I'm a Texas TO, so I'm not going to tell people how to do their jobs and how to run their tournaments because they're their own people and they can do that. But in my opinion, paint is a very important score because new people coming into the hobby don't care about a tactical showdown they don't care about a nuanced strategy they don't care about the shenanigans that were pulled to get a table one victory in game five they don't care we care new players don't new players want to watch people yelling and having fun they want to watch people shaking hands after a game and talking about how awesome it was commiserating with their opponent when dice don't go that well and they want to see gorgeous armies that makes them say i want to play that game sportsmanship and paint give those two elements to say hey you're not only the people here have a good experience but anyone that's wandering through they were at the hotel they saw the venue they start decided to walk in oh wow that's really cool i want to try that that's what paint and sportsmanship do apart from helping the to run the event in terms of recruiting new players to come in and play this game with us So a lot of TOs have ways they do painting. Some do a checklist. Some do uh, outsource paint judging. Some have rubrics. That's all fine and good. Do you want a reward uh, display board? That's up to you. Uh, At the Alamo, we don't reward display boards because a lot of our people travel in from out of town and it's really hard to fly with a display board if you've ever done it before. What I look at is pure painting. I don't have time to go through and know every model of every line of every company that's out there. And I don't really want to sit down with a player and go, okay, show me your conversions. Show me how you did a hand swap. If you did it well, I'm not going to know it unless you tell me. So that's not fair to you if you did a good job me to go, oh, well, I don't see any putty. So there's no conversions in this army. You may have sculpted the whole army. And if you did a great job, I won't know about it. What I do know is paint because I've spent a lot of time learning how. And so at Alamo, we do it purely on paint. You can bring as many bells and whistles. You can do LEDs. You can do fog machines. You can do water effects. You can do dynamic posing. You can run gears into your models and have them move for all I care. At Alamo, the question I ask is, How is it painted? And we are very clear about that on the website. We are the only tournament in Texas that does not award an appearance or a best army. We award best painted. That way people know what they can expect from it. And I think it masters that expectation was there too. If you come, you're going to find out how well your army is painted. And this is what we're going to look at.
3: I think most people on this cast, except Ryan, are in the camp of a hobby score, right? Which includes modeling, possibly theme, painting. It's all of it. Most of the rubrics that you'll get or the tournament packs will make that distinction. And uh, I think in the U S most of them go to the hobby side, but there are some pockets that are doing just paint.
5: And I will say that judging that is like the most time consuming piece of a tournament organizer's job, right? Going around, at least I know I do go around and look at everybody's army to try and determine, okay, where do, where do they fall within the tiers of painting that I've got for the scoring and then, okay, the, the, more well-defined point spread at the top of that tier.
7: Do you guys tend to add bonus points on Hoppy?
1: Yes, I was going to go ahead and hop in on that because Do mine it. is actually a, 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 a paint score in general so mine's on a a tier of uh 82 points where 70 points of that is pure painting uh, as far as how i'm i'm rating uh the elements of of the paint and then i offer uh bonus points more for the the hobby side of it so that there's like a uh, a section just for the the basing aspect of it and then obviously in the basing aspect i'm i'm looking at the painting of the basing as well the the items within there and so that way when i say i'm Giving somebody, uh, you know, first place paint. I can actually say, well, that's what you were mainly graded on was paint. Uh, I do have miscellaneous items in there, obviously, like for conversions and um, display board. But those kind of take it past that point of what I'm actually giving the the points for. So if somebody doesn't have, let's say, freehand, they can maybe make that up with the fact that they had a display board, um, it, it, something like that. So I, I've I've taken that. And then um, given it just a little bit of an edge, that way they've, they've got those little bonus points they can get because they did spend the extra time on, let's say, conversions or display board. Right. I have done the same thing, right? Not necessarily bonus points,
5: but you have different ways that you can get to a top score, right? If you are just like your whole army is converted out to the and they're all really well done conversions. Maybe you don't have the freehand. Maybe you don't have the, the multi-layer highlighting. But the things you've done to get to get your army where it's at can also get you to that that top tier hobby score.
7: Yeah, I agree. When you when you separate the groups of people into different um, categories of skill, I like to allow enough bonus points to have them jump up to the next level, like within that category, I guess. So like a bare minimum painting can potentially go to standard GT or standard GT up to a well-executed GT army, et cetera. Right, Right.
3: right. And I'll say that I also make the effort to include effort, right? A lot of times, uh, the rubrics and the, and the, the paint judge judging paint and hobby, a lot of times they default to what was the end effect? What was the result? And I like to reward, you know, effort. Maybe you didn't get to where, that it's a greatly painted army, but you spent a lot of time on it and you put a lot of effort into it. And so we want to reward that because that is more inspiring, more motivational to the new painter than, oh, I can paint like Chris Walsh or I can paint like Ryan Smith.
6: I would say if you're, if as a running a tournament, if you're not too big into the hobby aspect, the painting aspect and so forth, it's really good to go ahead and uh, not so forth. Not so much uh, outsource to somebody, but uh, you know, bring in somebody who who does care about it, and have him do your your judging. Help him help you make the the rubric and so forth. I'm definitely not uh, a painter. It's it's never really been something that that's attracted me. So when I had to start doing this with with Mountaineer, it was a, it was a big challenge for me i didn't want to insult anybody but i also wanted to kind of focus on battle so i, I struggled i brought in a guy locally who is quite a good painter and he, he does like the judging at nova open and so forth but even then since he wasn't part of the kings of war community people didn't really have that kind of like that connection you know you still had some some complaints and so forth and uh this year i was lucky uh jake Ter- Pika pokemon yeah unplugged radio jake uh, came in and i you know i think jake is pretty well respected in the community um more or less so it was nice to have him come in and and do our paint scoring he helped me come up with the rubric he actually downsized the the difference between like the lowest point to the highest point paint which i was i was surprised by but i you know i, I agreed with that and it was just really good to have him come in and i i respect his painting and how he looks at stuff so i can just kind of let that go to him, and I can just breathe easy because easy, I don't have to make those difficult decisions on something that, one, I, I don't really care about, and two, I definitely don't know anything about.
3: And let's be frank, the worst job at a tournament— is the paint judge.
6: <laughs> 100%. Agreed. Agreed.
3: Billy Smith still laments the fact that I made him be the paint judge at the first Masters. And I swear every weekend he reminds me of all the pain and suffering he had to go through and all the ridicule that went on afterwards because people complain about, you know, it's it's a thankless job and you need a special person that has thick skin to do it.
7: The easiest way to insulate yourself from potential issues is to be open and upfront with the way that you're judging it in advance. Like, as long as you put it in the player's pack that, hey, these are the things that I'm looking for, then you can kind of lean back on that and protect yourself by saying, hey, you didn't have this, or you didn't have object source lighting, or what you know, whatever little things that you were looking for.
5: Does do uh, paint judging never complains about their paint score? Another event because they know how thankless of a job it is.
7: That's oh, yeah. toing in general, I think.
5: Right. I
1: I will say that one thing that I've seen that I would warn other TOs against is having multiple people score painting. Uh, I've seen this, I think, twice now. I haven't seen it done right, I I guess I could say, is that I think it's a recipe for disaster because at least, yes, it it takes a long time and there's a lot of things that you need to be looking at and grading, but by having a single person take that and they're they're going back and forth. They're looking at different people. They're having their own scale. And so even if somebody doesn't agree with the paint score, there's still some type of semblance of uh, baseline there. And so you kind of understand where you've got consistency where if you have multiple people like, uh, doing it yes it'll speed up the process and it makes it a lot less stressful on the to but it, your results are going to be all over the place and it's just going to be a bad time for the players
5: yeah that would i, I agree that would be bad and i think if you're going to have multiple people do it they have to grade everybody's army and then you combine all the scores together because you can't have different people doing different armies
4: so and so in terms of should we briefly touched on what's the what's the minimum for sportsmanship because i think we all agree that, you know sportsmanship scores are there to stop people you know being a dick basically but how do you stop it from being just a plain old popularity contest you know the 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 guy that everyone knows it's really popular gets the highest scores and wins that how do you know what's the balance there is it is that the most capable of scores do you reckon
1: i i can chime in here so it, at my tournament i am making everybody Rate within a, a scale of one to five all the people that they're playing, and so the sports is actually your your sportsmanship is versus the other people that were played against that tournament and all all of those other um, players, and so there's no like oh pick your best three or just pick the the one that was your your best, which ultimately ends up being usually the last person that you play because you're exhausted and you just had a great last game and so you're you're having to keep in mind all the players that you play the entire tournament and rank them based off of everybody else there and so that's how the sportsmanship will be done at my tournament and I think that's a little bit uh, uh, more fair in regards to some of the sportsmanship that i've seen because sportsmanship is very subjective and i hate somebody losing a tournament because of it but at the same time it's like how do you try to judge that a little bit more fair um, the other part of it that i've seen is somebody's list um because everybody hates shit kicker lists and they don't want to get shot off the table before they've even, you know, they came there to play and have some fun. And then round two, they're like, oh, why am I even still playing here? Uh, and so um, I've made sure that there's a, a clear uh, delineation between your rating the player versus rating the list. And, um, the i actually have that as a separate um question on mine is uh would you play this list again would you play this player again and the only way that somebody is going to lose uh any points um it's an automatic points is if they have um had all five players that they played against the entire tournament vote that they would not play against their list again and frankly if you're bringing something like that to a tournament and all five players really hate your list as far as you would never want to play against that again. I mean, yeah, there should probably be something associated with that. So, and it's, it's not a whole lot of points, but it is something out there. So making sure that there's a clear delineation between the list, the player, and having some way to try and rate it a little bit more fairly. So it doesn't lean so heavily on the, the very last player in the tournament, uh, getting
7: that kind of sportsmanship that, that better vote, I think is important. Yeah, and I can kind of piggyback on what Brian was saying there. I typically have a pool of sportsmanship points that you start the tournament with, You kind of, and then you can draw back from those. At the end of every turn, or every uh, round, rather, uh, I have people vote that kind of similar to the way Brian said, that would you willingly play this person again? Would you willingly play this army again? And then kind of go into, was your opponent on time and prepared and ready to start the round on time? There's a lot of issues with... Clean play, I guess, and there's this weird shift in our meta in the southeast where sportsmanship is moving away from the friendly aspect and more towards the uh, clean play and almost cutthroat mentality. And I really, really disagree with that because I feel like it it is a way to let gamey players also get sports scores. And I think it's important that sports scores keep. Maybe not the popularity side, and I get that that could be potentially an issue, but I don't feel like it's as bad of it. Like, it's a good thing, right, if, if you're encouraging players to be friendly versus um, measuring to the nth degree to make sure that you are out of this charge or in this charge. Some people could say that that's not as sportly. I don't know. That's just my take on that side. And then going back to, to scores, I like to make sports and paint equal about worth a game's worth in a five-game tournament of points um, or about one and a half games, depending upon if it's a GT or a one day.
3: The last thing I'll mention is that it's also really important uh, to understand the difference between cap scoring and uncapped. So
7: oh, 100%.
3: a lot of people go, well, I have paint and I have sportsmanship, but if you've capped it and I'll explain what capped is in a minute, but if you've capped it, it's the same as not having it at all. In in terms of overall, I mean, cap scoring, what I mean by that is you may have a paint score that goes to 70, but in terms of its contribution overall, I'm only going to use 20. Well, what happens is there's no separation for paint for overall. And what happens is that disincentivizes, disincentivizes maybe your your best painters from really giving their best work because they know that, yes, they can win a painting award. That's great. But in terms of overall, it doesn't really matter.
7: That makes me think that the, the TO didn't correctly identify the cap. I think that the cap is important to keep certain things from just running away. Like a painter that, like you said, at 50 points more, if that went through, that would be insane. But if it's, five or six points more, then I think it's a little more reasonable.
5: Right, because it's about the spread that matters, right? It's not about, like, total points, because if your lowest army is a 30 and your top is a 50, maybe that doesn't make such a big difference, right? So it's really about the spread in terms of the
4: game and in terms of the scoring. I think we've rinsed that pretty well. Let's let's move on to terrain, because I think um, with your tournaments, terrain is one of the biggest challenges. If you've got a tournament with, like, 60 to 80 players, getting that amount of terrain together can be really challenging, so... What are some tricks for getting up to the decent amount of terrain? I mean, you can use store terrain, but it can be a really varying quality. And do you think that can detract from people's enjoyment?
2: So in the weeks before Alamo, I figure out how many tables I've got and go and make sure I've got terrain for every table. Uh, I generally try to aim for two hills, two uh, impassable, two forest. One specialty terrain, Uh, last year it was height one area terrain, which was something new, and then one either flat height zero or something else interesting, and then a couple of walls. And I just make sure I have all of those for the table. Uh, When I go to set up tables, Alamo uses dot deployment. Uh, We put dots down on the tabletop, and then the players place terrain alternating on those dots. Um, I've got six layouts that I drew up two or three years ago that I felt gave... Different enough experiences that you're not playing the same terrain every time or the same placement of terrain, but spread the terrain far far enough out that you would have firing lanes, you would have uh, bottle points, choke points if you want to set a defense there, um, and open spots if you wanted to move around. So we didn't punish any army too heavily. We didn't reward any army too heavily. I know there are strong feelings people have about hills and deployment zones. If you're, you want to set a hill in your deployment zone, great. I'm probably going to do the same thing when I've set mine up. As a TO, I don't want to put the terrain down, mostly because I have large display boards at Alamo, I have drunk people at Alamo, that terrain gets moved around, and I don't have time to go reset 30 tables worth of terrain in between every round, especially when I'm trying to get scores in or get paint judging done. So I'd rather have the players do it for me. Um, About a month before Alamo, I call some friends over that owe me favors. I buy them beer, I buy them pizza, and we focus on a part of terrain we're going to do. Last year we did a bunch of crates, we did a bunch of treasure chests, we did a bunch of ruins, uh, and we did height one area terrain for 30 tables so that every table would have one. Um, This year I think my forests need redoing. They've been beat up pretty heavily, Um, so I've got some rubrics I found on an old model railroad site that I'm going to do to make uh, forests out of them um you just as you play this game you start accumulating terrain and by the time you start going i think i've got enough clout that i want to run a tournament you've probably got five or six tables worth in your possession that you're not really sure you have um and then starting out you can also reach out to the tos around you um the texas guys are awesome about bringing fat mats bringing tables Uh, We can reach out and say, hey, I need five tables from Fort Worth and four tables from Houston, and I'll have their four best-looking tables in case I need extras at the end.
7: I think the easiest thing is to reach out to the community. I know I've done that several times and had people bring enough for one or two tables to make ends meet, um, and going back to the 10 to 12 pieces of terrain on each table. But just make sure it's relatively consistent table to table. Nobody wants to play on the open board table and then the table with all forests and lose because of that.
5: That's exactly right. You don't want to have such a dramatic difference from table to table. I mean, when we first started crossroads, I was actually renting terrain and tabletops from different TOs to kind of bring in and uh, kind of get me enough tables to start running. And then over time, just our gaming group here locally built up terrain. So now that we have enough, enough terrain to cover 50 tables and support a hundred players, so I think that's just something you do over the course of time as you build that up. But uh, I do think that having consistent terrain from table to table to table is uh, is a good thing, especially just from a competitive aspect of the tournament. That way nobody is saying, hey, the table I played on really screwed me over this game, right?
4: So there's consistent terrain, but um, I've seen – you know, and, and uh, Blue City Brawl is a classic example of this, right, where themed tables – and that's that's part of the attraction of that tournament, right? Is you come and you're going to play on a theme table. Here's an underwater table. Here's uh, you know, here's the, the the lava table. Do you think that's do you think that's infeasible with like sixty player tournaments? No, it, it's it's <laughs> not
3: feasible for like a sixty player event, right? Right, and that's and that's why we, you know we have a twenty eight player event. And it's a doubles event, so that's only like seven tables. So yes, I can spend six months building one table. If you're if you've got a sixty player event, it, it's just yeah, it's it's not you just you just don't have it. And also, I think there's something to be said with the larger events where it's better to have more consistent terrain that's more functional and maybe less narrative because at the end of the day, my my gut says that more players are more interested in a fair table than a pretty table.
5: That's what we found as as the player pool increased. We just wanted to have. And, and they do lead to some samey looking tables throughout the course of the event, but we wanted to have everything look the same, feel the same when you're playing on it. It's the same, whether you're on table 20, table 40, table one, they're all, the, they're all somewhat similar. And you won't have too dramatic of a difference. And, and it also from a terrain generation perspective, we can keep pumping out terrain in that same, in that same vein going forward much easier as we grow.
1: Yeah, I I went the exact opposite of that. I went the blue city route, and uh, first thing I did when I decided to have this tournament, it was just went and bought a three D printer, and was like, okay, this is my goal. I'm going to have 16 unique tables and go. <laughs> and I've been working on it for nine months straight, and it's been the most stressful thing on. The <laughs> oh, brother! What are you doing? <laughs> don't ever do that. <laughs> it's now. Don't get me wrong. It's I'm I'm hoping. That when this all gets said and done, that um, it'll be up there in, like, the the top five prettiest tournaments. But, uh, man, it has been super stressful. And I will say I agree with the the earlier person that absolutely lean on the community some. Um, I was – expecting myself to have to do this all on my own. And that's part of been the, the stress and the financial burden on this. And as I've gotten out there and my goal, I had a, a set cap of only 42 players allowed at this tournament and I knew I was going to be five tables short. And, um, I had people, I had multiple TOs from Texas all offer things, people from Nebraska. And actually I've got Nebraska bringing bring three tables, uh, on, on top of that, like all the TOs start getting together and they're like, Hey, anything I can bring to help you out, just let me know. And just, just know that that's out there when it comes to like TOs and other people, they, they've got this terrain. It's sitting around, they've got these mats, they're sitting around, like they want to help this out. They want to help out the community. Don't think you have to do it all on your own. Don't, don't be like me. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. There's plenty of support from your other TOs. Yeah, absolutely. Lean on, lean on
7: other people. Um, but and don't be like rob but don't get crazy with the terrain <laughs> yeah don't set an example that everyone has to follow <laughs> <laughs> and i would say players please thank your tos because i'm sure all of us have spent months in our garages or closets or wherever we hobby working on terrain that is almost always thankless because nobody thinks about it when they come to play the tournament
5: yep. right and i think I, i'll throw in a, a selfish note here too right as TOs, it's always nice when the players respect the terrain and are treating it somewhat carefully and not demolishing it throughout the course of a game and throwing trees on the floor and whatnot. It's just. A, I've,
7: I've had someone literally break a hill in half. I don't even know how that happens. Uh, it's insane.
5: Yeah. There's a ton of work that goes into this, and just it's nice when your player base respects that, right?
7: Oh, um. yeah.
1: Oh, and another thing on leaning on the community, I started reaching that breaking point because I went the stupid route with unique tables, and (laughs) I realized that there was going to be no feasible way I was going to be able to get done with all the painting in time. And so I reached out to the community and said, okay, guys, come to my house this weekend and – I'll bring I'll, – I'll offer up the beer. I'm going to smoke a brisket and just have it as like a big kind of community-building event, and it worked out great. I was able to bring in uh, most of the people from my area. Uh, they brought in all their airbrushes, and we were able to paint so much terrain and, and get so much uh, of it kicked out, and it, it really helped out – Everybody got used to each other. Everybody got, and of course, there was a little bit of alcohol thrown in there. So, everybody got a little crazy. So, some of the hills might not look the greatest, but I mean, it, it, it's all worth it in the end. So, definitely lean on other people.
5: Yeah, I think a lot of that—that's how a lot of the events here in the Northeast have kind of come together too. I know the Unplugged the Gamers, and the Yorktown guys—they had the same thing: big group terrain building building sessions that they would go out as a as a club and build all this terrain. And I think that's how you've got to do it if you want to have a sizable event with that kind of quality terrain.
6: But yeah, I just had one other thing that we didn't—I agree with. What everyone has said, uh, 100%. And then one other thing is uh, something that I've seen a lot of tournaments do recently, and we've done at Mountaineers the past two years too, is uh, having the same if, – if you can, you know, if it's not a themed event, if you're trying to go for consistency, having the same map for every table – I found that that cuts down on a lot of complaints where people were saying, Yeah, I, I played on the table, yeah, I played dominate with the impassable in the middle or something like that. But if you if you're sorting it, um, where every table has the same thing and you're keeping an eye on the scenario as well, like we talked about a couple of the Northeast events have been doing, then that that really helps keep the consistency down for for the event and helps the the players all feel like that everybody had a fair shake at things.
4: In before we close up this section, is how do folks in the U.S. see the U.K. scene? You know, what, what, what differences do you see? And heaven forbid, but is there anything you'd like to steal from the U.K. scene to bring over to the U.S. rather than the other way around, which I think is more typical? No, you guys are all crazy. I didn't even know if there was a U.K. scene, to be honest.
6: <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'd like to steal the pies that the Northern Kings guys have been doing. I think it's the Northern yeah. Kings guys. Yeah. Those look amazing.
1: The short drives, does that count? The short drives would be
5: great. Oh, I God three hours to a gt
4: that'd be awesome <laughs> so it's something you'd like to take not complain about you know so encouraging
7: one days i don't know but to see that goes back to the drive it doesn't make sense for people to drive 10 hours and then stay one day i think the, that's the difference
1: is the difference in the scenes is based off of the the sheer drive distance and the geography yeah it's it's all geography i think ultimately they're a little bit more competitive they can do more one days they yeah i they're a little bit more i think more hardcore than we are when it comes to like obviously time clocks they like to go a little bit faster i know their their point spread is is still they don't go as uh, crazy high as we do but again it's it's that whole geography it's it's
4: one days versus two days it's it's being able to have more events in the uk we uh, the uk uh, podcast we talked a little bit about um doubles events, because in the UK, I don't know if you know, but doubles events don't count towards master's points. So if you run a doubles event, it's harder to get people to come along. But that's not the case in the US. And actually, you have some really huge doubles and team tournaments, which all count towards ranking points and seem pretty popular. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so
5: Crossroads, we we moved to a four-man team tournament last year and that really took off. There was no other events like that in the for Kings of War in the US. And that's been a huge thing for us. I think it's really gotten a lot of people excited. And so this year we're running it in at the end of September this year, and we've got 18 teams, so 72 players. So that's it's huge. Um, One of the things we're doing and we do count ours for master's rankings. Right. And so and again, it's really up to each region how they count it. But in the Northeast, we count it based on the placing of your team. And then divide it by the number of players. So, um, like the team that finishes first place in the event, they get each player on that team gets a first place finish for that event. If you finish in second place, you actually each player on that team gets a equivalent fourth place finish, and then third place gets an eighth place finish, and so on and so forth. So, um, that's how we've kind of made the team event still relevant because I think you're right. I think that does. That would be a a negative to your event and would be something that would cause people not to want to go. As if it was one of the events that they would have to take a weekend off to go to and it wouldn't count towards Masters rankings, I think that would be a negative. So I think it's
1: important that those you find some way to make those count. I think that, that matters. Yeah, I think that team tournaments are freaking amazing that we have here in the u.s i've only been to i would say some of the the premier ones i've been to bcb obviously and then living legends out of dallas with jeff swan and both of those are outstanding events uh they you get a lot more people in a smaller area and so from a to perspective you're able to uh, maybe you're having a really hard time uh, getting those, you know, twenty plus tables that you need, because when it when it all comes down to trying to find a, a venue, it's how much money is is that place going to make money off of? Well, you got twenty tables eating up tons of room. Well, that's only forty players. Well, then you're trying to figure in that budget. Well, where a team tournament, you're talking. 80 players i mean you're talking double the amount of people that you can bring in that's extra funds that's uh, easier for you to get the the money spread out on the players which is going to help everybody it's a lot of fun um and so if you you're limited say maybe on on venue size look at maybe a a team's tournament because they're all they're a lot of fun and you can get a, a lot of people in a very small area
3: the sales pitch for a doubles event in particular You hit on it, the space, right? We had the venue. We knew we could probably put seven tables in there. If you go doubles, you can double the amount of people that you can pack in there. The other thing that I would mention is the barrier for entry is low. Because in a doubles format, you're typically going to be like maybe a 1,000 points, 1,200 points. It's not as intimidating to paint, you know, a 1,000-point army. Um, And then the third piece is it's a different level of socialization that you get than you would get maybe in a big regular event. I'm sure the team event that Corey runs is the same sort of thing. You've got this fraternal bonding with these people that are on your team or on your, you know, even if it's just one or three or four people, you're together and together you can, you know, you, you kind of have this bond in within, within this bigger group. And also if you have a new player, bring them onto the team and it's a great way to to kind of coax them into the tournament scene because, hey, don't worry. Don't be intimidated. We'll be right there with you holding your hand the whole time. And uh, so it's it gives a different opportunity, a different way to engage the hobby than, than just the standard show up in 60 players and we battle it out.
0: Right.
5: I, I think see the camaraderie a- aspect oh, is huge. It is. It's That's why we kind of move Crossroads to a team tournament because it's the most fun I have at an event is that these doubles or team tournaments. They are fantastic. And it's a, I highly recommend it to anybody that hasn't gone to a tournament. Go to a team event. Go to a doubles event. It is wonderful. And you're right, Rob. I think there's a lot of new players that are coming to Crossroads this year because – It's just easier to come with a group of experienced players and be a new guy playing with them to help have somebody to help guide you through that whole process.
1: Teams, teams tournaments are great for hobby funk because you are, it's only a, usually it's only like a thousand points, maybe 1200 points. It's, it's, and it's something that, okay, let's say I want to play. I've got some forces of nature laying around. Well, maybe I don't want to make a full army of forces of nature, well, I could probably scrounge together about a thousand points of that and, you know, kind of paint it crazy like, well, you sign up for the team tournament. Maybe it's with somebody that, you know, maybe it's not. Either way, you've got that pressure now on you to because if you screw this up or if you fail – you're not just affecting yourself; you're affecting your teammate, and so it, it's it's that extra incentive to make sure that you get done you, and that you bring it up to that next level of painting or to hobby or something. And so it, it's really good for the hobby to join a teams tournament, even if you. And, and most of these teams tournaments, they they understand that there's going to be uh, single people wanting to come to them, and so they'll they'll orchestrate. Uh, matching people up that are are looking from coming outside the area, uh, just as your own individual self, and they'll put them together. And as soon as you get tied up with somebody, that that pressure on. And so it's 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 good for the the hobby and good for the player as well.
4: Yeah, the scenes have developed based on the scene, right? So your 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 makeup of the tournament is built on how your country is developed. We're doing one of these um, coming up with the Australian tos. <sighs> I think that's going to be really fascinating because their travel distances are are nuts and their population centers are really spread out. So I'm going to be really interested to see how that has affected how they develop their tournaments. OK, so we've covered that pretty thoroughly. So we are going to saunter into a commercial break. On the other side, we're going to take a look at the how of tournaments. We will be right back. Hi, this is Rob Berman and you're listening to Countercharge. And welcome back. So let's talk about the how of tournaments. So... First off, venues, and I think the, the the right venue can be critical to success. So how do you guys find a decent venue for a decent price, and, and what do you look for? Is it location, parking, convenience? Um, if I say, you know, over there, hotel-based events are pretty popular. Do you think they have advent, advantages over, say, convention or store-based tournaments? Right now, my tournament's being
1: run out of an uh, event center inside of a hotel which is going to usually be tied to something like making sure that you are selling so many hotel rooms. So make sure that when you're budgeting for that, that you're doing something realistic that you can actually uh, hit <laughs> as far as and make sure that you're accounting as a T.O. how many drops you're going to have at the end of the tournament. Keep in mind that your players are going to be rowdy. even if there's no alcohol allowed that your players are going to sneak in alcohol. (laughs) So uh, all those things are kind of important. And one of the, I would say probably the most important thing in, the U.S. scene at least, is making sure you get it really early uh, because when it comes to advertising and it comes to uh, having that solid, yes, we're doing this, this is the dates we're doing it, this is where it's going to be at, getting that out there word of mouth and advertising in other tournaments, letting everybody know that you are having this and not waiting to the last minute is very important in our community. Yeah. So, um, I'm having mine this year. I don't know if that's going to fly next year. Uh, We'll see how it goes. Also, once you have that successful one, I know that it becomes a lot easier to get other places if you somehow need to to move it, Uh, because you could say, hey, this is what's going on, and these are the, the players that we can consistently bring in. So.
2: So Alamo's is a, a unique case because we're, we're one of the oldest grand tournaments in America, and we've been at the same venue every year for, I think, 15 years now. Uh, only once have we not been in that venue because it was double booked. So we play in a bar, and that has its own problems and its own uh solutions. We don't have to worry about filling hotel numbers. We don't have to worry about check in. We don't have to worry about, uh, people sneaking bar- uh, beer into the event because if they do, we can throw them out. And if they sneak liquor into the event, then that's fine because it's in our contract that they're allowed to do it. Um, the important thing is before you run a tournament, you need to have a good, solid minimum number of people that have to come to make it worth it. And then you need to start your budgeting with that about two-thirds of that cost is going to pay for the venue. Uh, A little less than that if it's your first event because you're also going to be buying terrain and fat mats and logistic things. But about two-thirds of the budget every year goes into my venue because it's expensive to pay for a place for a whole weekend. So once you have a guess how many people are going to show up and be realistic with it, don't be optimistic with it, find a venue that will allow that budget for the weekend. That's where you want to start with a venue
5: yeah, so from my standpoint, I think the venue is critical, right? And I think one of the when we started crossroads many years ago, re- people ask, why is there a tournament in the middle of nowhere upstate New York? <laughs> because we could get some awesome deals on venues here. actually, the the event space is fairly reasonable from a price perspective, and it's available when we want it. And we have a really good relate really, I have a really good relationship with the people that own the hotels and run the event space. So for us, it's available. We've developed a great relationship over time where they love having us there over the years. They welcome all the gamers. The drinking is a thing, right? And so they're allowed to bring their alcohol in. And as long as there's our bottles and cans everywhere, and everybody's throwing it out. The hotel's like happy to have us. They're like, you guys are awesome. You come in, have a great time. Um, <clears throat> from my standpoint, I think we wanted to make sure that our event was in a hotel because we wanted people to be right there on site the whole time, not have to go anywhere. Um, we can order food in, so people really don't even have to leave the hotel if they don't want to. And and I think that just contributes to the whole community building aspect of the tournament is that people are hanging out till one, two, three o'clock in the morning half the time in the gaming hall, just playing games at night. They'll get there early. On a Friday, just to chill out at the hotel and hang out. I mean, whenever I'm setting up for the event, I always have a dozen people that are just helping me bring in tables, bring in terrain, get things set up. Just because they get there that early, because that's that's part of their weekend getaway. They want to go and they want to start seeing their buds and having the hangout happen. Um, because we're in kind of a rural area, parking isn't really a big deal for us. But I know in some other areas where you're um, more city-based that parking can be an issue, right? And so you you might not be able to be in a hotel. So how do you get there? How easy is it for people to get to your venue? I think that's important too.
6: Yeah, Corey touched on a, a lot of great points. Uh, I, think, I think when you run these events, you kind of got to look at it like you're, you're throwing a party for the community. You're just doing this big event for everybody to come to. And so the the venue and the convenience and so forth. I mean, it's the, it's kind of like a vacation for these guys. So you've got to make sure it's, uh, you know, everything is, is up to par, like uh, just convenient, easy to get to drinking. I think drinking for us was uh, pretty important. We had to have that. We, we have a local hobby shop that could easily have supported the tournament every year. Um, But the drinking issue was going to be a little tough. And then also, the people aren't staying at the hobby shop right they, they got to stay at the hotel so driving back and forth after drinking that that's that's trouble as well so we've always tried to do it at a hotel keep everybody there this year we brought in uh, barbecue for Saturday night so that nobody had to move I mean once you got there on Friday you had I okay okay we yeah, we had Saturday lunch you had to go out for it, but we had food there so people didn't really need to so just make sure you have the the food available the drinks available and make sure everybody doesn't have to go anywhere. And I think everyone will, the community by itself will just have a good time. Yeah. That's
5: something we started doing last year too, is we had like a, a Mex- Mexican buffet catered into the event on Saturday night. And people are like, this is amazing. We don't have to go anywhere. The whole group gets to stay together. I know the guys at the King beyond the wall, they did that too. They brought in pizza for, for the whole tournament on Saturday oh. night. And I think that's just a, a cool thing that keeps everybody together and keeps
1: the hangout going longer. Or I'm, Having something nearby, if, if you aren't going to have it catered, uh, in my case, I've got two restaurants. One of them is within walking distance that offers alcohol, and the other one is less than a block away. And I've reserved enough tables so that I'm hoping that the the crowds will go to those areas and say, hey, guys, these are where the, the two after uh hours things are at this is where people are going to be going to drink this is where people are going to be going to eat and this is what they offer and just having that kind of organized and and being available for everybody that way everybody stays together and they don't just go okay we're done and then you know they they hope something happens
5: yeah i think that's a good point right because if you even if you're not able to cater or bring food in if you can stage something to go all go out to the same place if everybody wants to it helps keep everybody together i mean we used to do that before we were bringing food in where we would all go to the same mexican restaurant called garcias and i mean we eventually we outgrew it because we would all be at that same restaurant now once you're getting up to 60 70 80 people they just can't handle that capacity but it was it was good because everybody knew saturday night this is where we're going and everybody goes
3: the venue's important i mean it kind of sets the tone for the weekend and it helps decide you know what type of event you have and how much of a social interaction is going to be, and I've also been to Bug Eater GT with with Brian, and that's in a high school. There's no drinking in a high school, but that was still probably one of the best events I've ever been to because still did a good job of keeping us together, and and providing that social uh, experience with your with your players
1: it was awesome. Right, even if you can't be in a hotel, you want to keep everybody together. Yeah, absolutely. It is uh one of those things as a as a player not just from the TO perspective but understand that that these tournaments are going to be wildly different and so make sure that you are uh, prepared for them and understand that, that you know it's still a lot of work no matter what goes into it so when I started new into the scene I went from Lone Wolf which is this monstrous beast of a awesome crazy time everybody's getting toasty to bug eater as my next tournament and bug eater is this dry in a school uh two completely different experiences and um it, bug eater was just as good as lone wolf but they, they it was very jarring for me and understand that just about all the tournaments kind of feel that way they're all going to have different themes when you start getting into the doubles tournaments there's going to be a lot of uh, different items associated with that and so um, just kind of from a to perspective make it your own thing make sure that you're you're planning ahead for those aspects and as a player realize that you you're going to be going to a different tournament than the last one that you went to.
5: And I think we'd mentioned a little bit here about running, running tournaments as part of a a convention. To me, that's a giant pain in the ass (laughs) because you are, you are stuck working within a schedule of an overall event and a bigger framework. And maybe registration has to happen differently. So I know I've done it a couple of times to me. That's just, that sucks. (laughs) It's trying to do that.
3: It's very hard, but I will say if you're a new TO and you're not established like Corey, What that does give you is you don't have to worry about logistics. You've got a date and a time and a place to go. And then the one perk that we got from Nash with TNT being in Nashcon this year is we've got you know 20 new players uh, because they came around, they saw the event. Because if you're if you're a standalone event, you're not going to get all you're going to get's the faithful. If you're at a, a convention, the unfaithful are out there and they may see you and and interact with you and learn to play the game, but if, if you're confident enough to, to know the players are going to show up and you have the ability and the wherewithal and the financial ability to do this, you know, setting it up on your own is not a terrible idea.
5: Uh, you're right, Rob. I mean, being part of a convention does have an advantage, too. Like if you like, maybe you wouldn't normally have been able to get a venue. With, part of being a con is that you, now you have the venue there available for you, too. And there's other
4: benefits as well from being in a convention, right? Because it means that people see – Um, Kings of War being played if you're in a convention. So I was listening to, I think, the Chance of Gaming podcast, and they never talk about pretty much Mantic at all. And yet, he was going to Nashcon and he'd seen uh, all the stuff from TNT and he was talking about Kings of War and I'm like, yes, that is how you gain visibility for our game and you do pull in new players, right? And that's a huge benefit. It's a pain in the ass for you guys, but for the community as a whole, that's great.
3: And he didn't even actually come to Nashcon. He was just... Reading about Kings of War, and we actually had new players that showed up completely out of the blue because they saw that Kings of War was playing in Nashcon, so they drove the two hours or whatever and came in and and sought us out and said, "Hey, can I get a demo game in?" Um, so you do have that, but I, you know, I, I like to think the community can do both we can have we can have both types of tournaments and both types of tournaments can be successful
1: i'd like to play devil's advocate here for a second because i've seen uh, you can pull in new players and that is is great but i've seen it go the other direction too so that's something that as a to you need to be careful of is that you have your tournament at this convention like adepticon or gen con or somewhere else and you're losing players because they want to go to that that convention and so i've been to a few where it's like hey we would have had some of these local guys but there's other major things going on at this convention and they they just don't want to go to the tournament and so and you need a, to absolutely keep that in mind that's a
3: great point point. And, and, and i would say this when we talk about conventions the ones that work are mini war gaming tabletop war gaming specific if you're talking about things like Gen Con, no one's going to go to Gen Con to play Kings of War, period. And Mantic has said such, and that's why there's not going to be tournaments there next year. And also, I should mention, if it's a really large convention, uh, there's 25,000 people, there's too much distraction there. Um, but if you can have a smaller one, like a Historicon, Cold Wars, Nash Con, uh, Crucible down in Florida is the same way. It's a, you know, a several hundred person convention that are specific to tabletop wargaming. Those are the ones I think you can be successful at. But Brian, you bring up a very good point. Be careful because if you bring your players into this large venue, cost is, is, is up, right? And two, there's so many distractions.
5: Yeah, I mean, to Brian's point, I've actually going to Adepticon a couple of years ago, I actually passed on the Kings of War tournament because I wanted to do some of the other stuff, some of the painting demos and all the other things that are going on at the convention. So that is a competing uh, viewpoint. And I mean, if I were to make a recommendation to the people running the Adepticon tournament, maybe run the actual events later in the day, instead of during the middle of the day. So people can still go to some of those events earlier and still compete in the tournament. Just a, just a potential thought there. I think the the schedule allows for that at Adepticon especially, where you can you can actually get the best of both worlds.
3: And especially at the events they have before the big GT. I mean, the, the big GT, I understand, is a two-day event. There's not a whole lot of timing that they can change. But, like, the stuff they do on Thursday and Friday, spread it out.
6: Do it in the evening. And th- cool. There could be uh, – you're, you're removing some of the financial pressure t- when you work with a convention because then you don't have to uh, – you don't have to book the venue at your, yourself. Um, so – I know that's been a thing. Like the first two years at Mountaineer, for some odd, bizarre reason, Martinsburg, West Virginia, it's pretty much in the middle of just about nowhere. But the venue cost is it's high, so uh, we we lost money the first two years. And working with the convention, you can you don't have to worry about that venue price, so you just don't have that pressure. You don't have to get like so many people to sign up. So, everything I haven't tried it, so everything that everyone else has said is something to, to think about. I'm wondering if, like, a one day tournament might be a better fit for some of these larger conventions. You know, just do something on Saturday, maybe early in the day or later in the day.
3: You're bringing up a very good point, and, and it's got me thinking one of the flip sides of working with a convention is you've got to put butts in the seats. We ran an event at NashCon a few years ago. We got 40 players. We asked for more room, and they're like, ah, we can't give it to you. (laughs) So, like, the reality is, if you are an event, you've got to sort of be successful for them to keep you on the there's a million people that want that table space and if you don't fulfill and sometimes it's hard for those first time events right but you've got you've got to find a convention that's willing to let you build it up because like i said we we actually had to leave nashcon for a couple years and really grow the event to a size that they kind of had to to take us serious at that point because you know if we can get 65 players then okay that's that's now something that they felt Comfortable bringing this back in and giving us a lot more space. So
1: I'll toss out another thing because it's related to the venue: is you need to keep in mind the cost of other things going on in the surrounding area at the time. So uh, you might have this amazing venue that's really cheap, but if the hotels in the area are three fifty a, a night, then you're going to run into nothing but problems. Uh, I think of I'm, I'm I'm tossing out Lady the Lake here because he he does with the the right way. Chris out there, he's he's got um he's got the venue that, you know, has changed a few times and it's an amazing venue and it's within his budget. But the hotels in that area are redonkulous during the summer months because it's 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 a tourist area, uh, and so he offers up obviously places for people to stay on his property, and it, it, he has his you know event. It's a it's a great time, but that's something that you need to keep in mind is that it's not just the venue, but also what's going on. There might be some, there not just a convention. There might be something else going on in the area that's going to affect what is going on in your tournament, be, just be aware of it. That's an awesome point, Brian, I think. And you can mitigate that
5: somewhat. If you like, and you mentioned this earlier, getting your venue set early, if you can get your venue set, like I I do mine two years out. So the venue set, you get your hotel rates locked in that way. If something else comes up, you've got your rates locked in before they bounce up. I mean, because I've come up against like parents weekends for local colleges or some type of big racing event in the area. Those things will push those hotel rates skyrocketing all of a sudden. So as a TO, if you're trying to run something yourself and you're trying to get in, locking in your rates as soon as possible before other competing external events can influence that. That's a
4: big deal. So in terms of, um, you know, because uh, you talked about losing money and things like that, what is the best way to get money from participants? You know, does everyone just use PayPal, online stores, you, you know, cash? How, and how do you manage those signups if you're you know, a couple of months out and your signups are looking low. At what point do you cut that off? How how do you manage that to avoid, you know, massive financial penalties to yourselves as TOs? Cattle prods.
5: Public shaming.
4: Right? Public shaming, beating the hell out of people. No, I,
1: I, I, I use PayPal for mine. Uh, it seems to be pretty effective. I've also uh, offered up other opportunities for people. So some of them said, hey, is it OK if I bring it in person? And just make sure that you're, you're having enough funds in whatever pool that you're needing to pay for your uh, bills ahead of time, but um, that so that not everybody is bringing cash to the event. I think PayPal's been the, the primary use here. A couple people wanted to pay through uh, Facebook, um, and it is it, it's it's a it's a tough thing to make sure that you're you're because you, you need to have the funds way ahead of time and, and a lot of players don't realize how early and how helpful it is to get those funds because you want to make sure that they're coming and getting awesome, cool swag. And so, you know, you've got, you got things that you have to order and sometimes it's ridiculous the the amount of times, like if you want dice and it, it takes like three months to get your dice in like, and it all that is coming out of your own pocket unless people are paying early and, and are being, uh, Open And that goes back to getting your venue nice and early, getting your dates locked in, getting your timetables locked in and getting the word out there. That way people can start signing up. People can start paying early. That way you can get them more things uh, for the tournament when the time comes.
2: So when I'm doing my signups, if you email me and say you're coming, that's great. But if you don't give me money, I'm not showing you a signed up because I'm really lazy. And it takes effort for me to log in and update my database. Uh, I want mine done through PayPal because it's easier. It gives me a record. It lets me go in and say, hey, did this guy pay? He says he did and I didn't see it. I can log in and see whether or not he did. Uh, So it's very convenient from that point of view. Their commissions are annoying, but... There's a little catch to that. If you do PayPal as friends and family because you're not a business account, and come on, we all play Kings of War, we're all friends, then PayPal doesn't take its fees from you. Uh, if you're doing it through a credit card processing site or an e-commerce site, then you're going to be paying that 25 to 5% commission on the credit card company, and that eats away at what you've got to pay your venue, to pay your uh, prize support, to pay your terrain refresh, and to pay for your printing needs.
5: Here's the tournament organizer plea to all the players. Right. Try and pay three months before the event, right? Because you mentioned prize and swag swag and prize support. You can't do that kind of stuff to the level you want if everybody's paying the month before or even two months before. I think I think just from my experience, three months out is that sweet spot where okay you can get your your down payment for your venue, you can get your down if you're doing catering, you can get your down payment for your caterer. You can get all your orders in for your prize support and your swag and time for it to get there, and so you know what you've got ahead of time. Other than that, if uh, if your player base is majority majority paying like one or two months out, it's tough, right? You don't you don't get the funds you need to start running that, and then you start absorbing a lot of that cost yourself as the tournament organizer
6: and you might want to do more things and you just don't know that you whether or not you can justify it because you don't know how many people are going to show up so
5: right if, if those um, people that said they're going to be there end up saying oh I can't make it and cancel it. and so all of a sudden you get 10 15 people that aren't going to show up You're like oh man I spent all this money on prizes and now I'm- I'm going to be in the in the red,
1: right? That's something to definitely keep in mind is that the the drops. I'm kind of in that same boat where you've you've had that big swing at the end of people that are drops, and most of those people that end up dropping, the majority of them have not paid, and so you can kind of see it coming ahead of time. But you are hoping that they were going to get it done, so you need to kind of keep that in mind as you're doing the prizes and you're you're doing the uh, all the things that you're budgeting on. Uh, one other thing to Super. Keep in mind when it comes to the the costs associated with it, if it's tied to anything else with your tournament, like in my case, you're you're I'm getting it done at a hotel. I have to have so many rooms that need to be sold in order to drop the price down of the event center. I Was hoping that that would have already been done, and then of course, like part of the problem is is now I'm I'm toying with the idea of well, this is going to cost me way more than what I had budgeted for. And you need to keep in mind because everybody waits to last minute for some reason to get their hotels, and then on top of that, then the links start going dead for your your hotel room. Right, right. right. And so then then instead of just you know looking and and trying to figure out well what can we do to try and help out the TO people start getting. Um, hotel rooms on like Expedia, Ryan Smith and, uh, other areas. And then you don't really,
3: which doesn't help you,
1: which doesn't help you as a TO it doesn't help you. So it, it, you need to make sure that you're getting the word out early. You're really trying to uh, put the pressure on the players. Hey, if you guys are going to go out there and you're going to travel you know, get together and and get that room, get it through this link early because you're going to lose your discount and you're not helping this tournament by getting through other means or by waiting to the last minute.
3: And there's a few events that actually incentivize you buying a room at the venue, right? Uh, I know Lone Wolf in the past has given you a few points. Hey, you're helping the tournament and we're going to help you by giving you a couple bonus points.
1: I think that would have been something I, sh- I would have done in hindsight. <laughs> yeah i would say our our community
5: so as gamers we're not the most advanced planning folks in the world right so as as a to you do a lot of herding of cats right trying to push people to register early get your hotel rooms so like you said the hotel room blocks are typically only good 30 days out so if you're waiting until that month before to book your hotel room that hotel block has already expired
3: you mentioned it the kings of war community in particular is pretty terrible about putting their money where their mouth is right yep sign up early and often but what what I think the one of the benefits over this last year is, oh, you didn't get to go to Adepticon because you waited too long. I think there's some of that coming around now, where oh, we're not going to be ha- have lots of spots left with with ten days to go.
5: Well, that's that's the ultimate motivator, right? I think that was that's what it was back in the Warhammer days, right? Is like the events would sell out like within 24 hours, so you better get your registration and get your payments in, or else you're not going to be coming. So I think we're starting to get to that point, volume wise, now where a lot of these events are suddenly out of space. And so, sorry, you, you missed the player cap. And so now that'll, that'll motivate people to start getting their registrations in earlier, get their payments in earlier, because now there is a wait list. There are people that are trying to get into these events where there's just not enough room. So I think that's a good thing, and it's a good spot to be in. That's a great place to be.
4: So, you know, advertising, advertising we've talked a little bit about it, it can make or break a tournament, right? Um, and it's fair to say that in the, in the world of war games, for whatever weird reason, Facebook is king. It is weird. My mom's on Facebook, guys. Um, regional groups, they're, they're pretty well set up on Facebook in the U.S., but, uh, but newer players might not be aware of the regional groups. And So where do you guys advertise for your tournaments, and how do you reach the players that might not be aware of that Facebook community? Because they're, I don't know, under the age of 50. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the best advertising you can do for your tournament is to go to other people's tournaments. And while their tournaments are good, let people know how awesome yours is, too.
1: Going to other tournaments is a, is a must. You, you need to yeah. get your word out there at the other tournaments. Every tournament will have a time frame uh, right there at the end where they offer uh, the other TOs or other players the opportunity to say, hey, look, here's the tournaments that are coming up. Come to it. Getting words out there for that and getting it out there early so that specific regions know ahead of time and they can account for that is a must. Um, The other thing is getting it out there on uh, kowtournaments.com, and uh, that way people can see it out there um, that it's coming up and that it's already scheduled and it's already ready to go, and the player account's associated with that. Um, And then Facebook. I don't know why, but everybody in the King's Award – Everybody in the Kings of War community uses Facebook, and so you definitely need to get your event saved out there. Get it posted in whatever your your region is. Get it posted in Fanatics. Get it um, surrounding regions. Bump, it, regu- uh, bump region. it regularly, right? <laughs> yeah, bump it regularly. Like, j- Don't just figure, oh, well, I'm in you know Oklahoma. Let me just post in the Oklahoma. Make sure you're getting it in the Texas area. Make sure you're getting it in the surrounding regions out there in your regional pages. Getting the word out there in, in – so many aspects when it comes to facebook is actually it's it's kind of ridiculous but it's
4: what, the way it is
3: if you want to know if you've done enough is when people start complaining that you're spamming it then you know you've hit the mark <laughs>
4: that's right that's right <laughs> let's talk a little bit about tournament packs so you know a well made tournament pack i think it can attract players and it can make your lives a hell of a lot easier in the day it sets expectations um, What goes into a good one, and, and most importantly, how do you make sure your players are actually reading the damn thing? So this is a fact
2: that every TO learns, and some of us don't like learning, your players aren't going to read the pack. You can have the most clearly worded scenarios, you can have the prettiest rules, you can have the clearest description of how things should go, how terrain placement should go, what everything is, how breaks work. Your players aren't going to read them. I have found... That I need to stand in front of my players and read the scenario to them every time, or they will miss the important detail on how this thing works. Um, It's like kindergartners. They have to experience to learn. Reading is passive, unless they're one of those top five guys that's metagaming Friday night trying to figure out how to do it, how to break the scenario, how to best strategize. They're not going to read the scenarios until they're rolling dice, sometimes not even until turn four or five. So don't put too much effort into the player pack. It's important. Here's the important things you need in a player pack. You need a schedule so that people know when the games start, when they have to be there, when they have time for lunch, when they have potty breaks. You need... Any special rules that will be handled, how you're going to do uh, charity rerolls if you're doing them, how you're going to do cocked dice, how you're going to do terrain, if there's a key for terrain, what it's going to mean. Uh, If there's a sliding scoring system, you will want to explain that so that they can refer to it when they've been arguing about it for five minutes. And then you're going to want the rules for your scenario. It's a good idea to write everything in there, but be fully prepared to answer the same five questions that are already in the damn scenario because they're not going to get read the way you want them to. I don't know how you make them read it.
5: (laughs) That's, that's the hardest part, right? Um, what I've stolen from other tournaments is one of the things I really liked is kind of printing your score sheets, all as part of the tournament pack and having them just tear off the pack. And I, I think Chris Kapsner did this at one of the events I went to where, okay, round one score sheet, it was the last page in the tournament pack, so he just ripped it off the back, filled it out and handed it, and so it's it's all stapled together so they're not losing score sheets, not coming up to the TO desk. Hey, I lost all my score sheets, can you help me? It's all right there stapled in the player pack. So it kind of helps them keep it handy and it's a really cool way just to get everything organized.
1: Yeah, definitely having something that they can rip off separately. I will say that I've I, I, I might be weird in this regards. I've liked kept in, like, keeping my my previous uh, tournament packs and I think that was mainly because I was toying with the idea of running my own tournament and so I've come back to those when I've shown new players, hey, this is what's going on and if you're ripping off the entire scenario, then you don't have any, anything to kind of reference or show anybody later. And so I've actually separated all my my tear-offs into a, its own little separate pack so that there's like a tear-off pack, and then there's actually everything that you can keep. Uh, and that way they can just rip them off in in the order that they need to be turning in everything and then hand them in. But I'm also kind of great. So.
5: <laughs> yeah, I, li- I like having all the terrain maps, all the scenarios, everything right in the tournament pack. So if somebody wants to, on Friday night, when they get there, they can look through it, they can see everything that we're doing, play the scenarios, what the maps are going to look like for each round, like having it all right there in the player pack. And then sometimes the other thing that's hard is the score sheets, right? So for people that go to tournaments all the time, that have been doing this for years, don't think twice about it. But your new players, when they're coming in, it's easy to forget how confusing those score sheets can get sometimes. And so for the new players, I'll usually put in like a sample score sheet and have it kind of red line. Say, okay, if you win, you'll circle here. Or, and then you'll put in your bonus points down here, put your name here, do your sportsmanship scoring down here and how all that's done just to kind of give a guide on how to fill out the score sheet. Because I, it's been a long time for me since I was new doing this. And when new people come, it's a little bit confusing sometimes.
3: Well, one thing that I stole from uh, Sword of Kings and used it in Blue City is they actually had a thing where all the scoring was done on one sheet of paper, and you literally just handed it back to the team. And and what that gave you was at the end of the event, as a player, you have the names of all your opponents, the names, in our case, the names of the teams, what they scored, what you scored. So you had, like, this thing that was a record of your whole event. And so when you got to things like sports scoring and stuff – it made it easy. Also, I've seen, even if you don't go that direction, I've seen where there's a tracking sheet of sorts that, that you know it says, write down the names of your opponents, what table you played, and what the score was, so that at the end of the event that cuts down on the, the people coming to you and say, who did I play in the second round? Yep. You know, you can kind of have people help themselves.
1: I've got the know, is great for that, that right? I've got that at the bottom of each of mine where it's like, before you turn this in, write down your player on such and such piece of paper. And so it, it, it keeps them incentivized in regards to that. Uh, I will also toss out for newer TOs uh, right now is a great time to buy supplies. Uh, keep in mind that school supplies uh, <laughs> go on sale uh, around that, this bro. time. Uh, you buy your paper, buy your your cheap folders, whatever you want to do. Get your five cent folder, that's right. Oh, uh, you get your five cent folders. Buy your stuff. Uh, you know, even if it's going to be for the upcoming year or whatever, it's all on sale right now. No point in wasting the extra money because uh, your player's going to wait till last minute to pay you. So you might as well get the stuff on sale <laughs> and get it ahead of time. <laughs>
3: I think, too, it's worth to mention that content is king, so what goes in your player pack is really important that you have everything you've got. I've seen some some events that really went with really flashy packs, full color and magazine style. That doesn't really add much for me personally. As long as the content's there, that's the—I mean, it can all be black and white. I don't care. As long as all my questions are answered, I'm good.
5: Yeah, one I'm year just... I tried doing color coded uh paper for all the different score sheets so they know which round was which color in that. I didn't really Oof. add too much.
4: <laughs> Prizes can can make a big difference, right? And uh, it's always quite impressive you see a loaded prize table. Obviously the main reason people go to ranking events is 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 sweet, sweet ranking points, so you all can get to, to masters. But um how about how do you go about getting price support? You know, do you spend your entry fee on prizes and how much of that do you kind of allocate for it as a start? You know, and, and then. With your prize support, how do you how do you get? Out? I know we've covered it on Countercharge a little bit—the dissemination of prize support. You know, the winner gets a prize. Do you make sure everyone gets a prize? How do you go about it?
5: So I allocate. I do allocate a percentage of the entry fee to specifically go towards prize support, and that includes trophies for the winners as well as swag that's going out to the participants and any kind of product that's going to go out there too. So I do actually take a percentage of the entry fee and allocate that just for prizes. But uh, again part of being the TO is reaching out to different vendors and trying to get donations or work out some deals for purchasing prize support. Actually, I'll say this Mantic has been really, really great as far as providing, donating some prize support. And uh, I'll throw a shout out to Chris who's on the podcast. He's been a great supporter of the tournaments in the mid Atlantic and the Northeast as well, willing to help, uh, help provide some pride prize support for their tournaments as well.
6: Yeah. Yeah. companies companies like mine that like you can always reach out to them um mantic does the same thing you could reach out to them and say hey i'm going to run this tournament i i'd like to i'd like to buy some prize support for it you know can you can you help me out you know can you give me uh you know a little bit more of a discount or um what one, one thing i do is i'll like I, I helped with keystone and i did kind of the same thing for mountaineer um uh, where i provided price support just just a little bit a bit above cost so it's just kind of it made a little bit you know for for me as the store but uh for the the for the tournament it's also very affordable and uh, i think mantic does that as well i mean you can always reach out to to kyle or maybe it's community pet um and and they would do the same thing they'll 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 help you out so that you can provide uh you know enough enough price support for everybody and then they also also just gift you you know donate a bunch of prize support and it's it's been very it's it's been very useful to to provide to people when it's the stuff that people care about right because we're going to a king's award tournament
5: right exactly and i like I, I don't know how you guys give out the the prizes at your tournaments but i tend not to give out like product to the big winners i mean the big winners typically tend to already have a lot of the stuff that they want and might not necessarily value the, the stuff that we give out so i'll do a, a big raffle at the end of the event and, um, for us at Crossroads, we take half of the proceeds from the raffle and we make a donation to the guys over at easy army to help, help fund that site. But, uh, that's, that's where pretty much everybody has an opportunity to win a prize, uh, through the raffle.
1: I think one of the important things is if, for TOS is to make sure you get the word out there early and to try and hit up as, as many, uh, places as you can. If you're looking at like online, um, Places. Uh, obviously, hit up Community Pat, hit up Kyle for it's going to take them a while to get things kind of squared away. So you want to make sure you're doing it early. Some places online, they have a specific budget every single year. And so you need to make sure that you're hitting them up. Even if your tournament's in October, hit them up at the beginning of the year and say, hey, we're going to be putting on a tournament. Would you you know, like to support us? Uh, obviously, any type of local places uh, have been really helpful. Um, even if you're having to buy it out of the funds for the the tournament which is it's probably going to be a thing getting that discount is is always helpful and that way you can put them down as a sponsor they like getting their word out there um i make sure that i I offer to say hey i've got these little uh goodie bags that i'm going to be giving out the tournament um can i get your business cards and that way you can toss in the business cards for the the places that you're getting it from uh tim lotus uh has been great For my tournament, he does uh, his little wood burning, I forgot what it's called, but uh, like his MDF stuff, and he does a lot of Kings of War things, and uh, a lot of the stuff that's going out to my players is going to be done by him. He's offered some extra items, and of course, I want to make sure that all the players are aware of him, and so I got all his business cards in my goodie bags, and making sure that you are... Just doing it all well ahead of time, if you if you can. Uh, obviously, it's it's hard with the budgeting, but yep. a lot of that those goodie bags, a lot of those those extra swag things take a long time to get in. So your dice are going to take a long time to get in. I like to, I I love seeing a, you know a couple of dice being given to the players. I'm doing uh, custom shot glasses uh, for my players this year, and that it, it takes a long time because it's coming from China.
3: Warchester Creations is Tim Alonso's company, so he makes some really cool MDF swag.
1: He does. The things that I actually see new players don't really have or people that use a lot of the tournaments is what I kind of focused in on. So I've got them all. He made some little tiny uh, Bison Brawl art counters for me, and I've got them making uh, turn counters uh, as well that are custom turn counters for the tournament, and everybody's going to get one for coming. Yeah, we're really looking forward to it, but getting it done early. Um, and then as far as dispersal of the the bigger items, again, we've got I've got trophies made for all the 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 prizes. I've made sure that there's a difference in the look of the the higher place trophies, and then um, yeah, if if you're you're coming and you're getting your crap kicked in for. For five games, I, I, I think you you you'd be a champ for making it to the end of the tournament. And so I'm going to work my way from the bottom up to about midfield as far as giving out stuff off the table. And then about midfield, I'll start uh, just kind of grab the remaining people left as, as far as a pool, and then we'll, we'll pull those names at random. I try to have uh, – I've been very fortunate in the prize support this year. So everybody's walking away with at least one thing, more than likely – There's going to be a decent chunk that'll have two items as well, on top of the things they're they're getting uh, for just coming to the tournament. So.
5: And if you're lucky enough to have a local gaming store, I think it's if you if you can spare the space, it's cool to have the vendor just come in if they're if they're willing to and come up and set up a little vendor space in the hall too. I think that's just a nice thing to to work out with the vendor if you have something available.
6: Yeah, and if you if you do that, you can go ahead and uh, work out something with them where they could provide uh, some prizes. like yeah, right. gift certificates. Right. I mean, they love that because it, it's something that they give, and it's you're usually going to buy something more than the value of the gift certificate. So, uh, and it gets gets them to, especially if they sell online, it gets some name recognition out there.
5: Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a mutually beneficial setup for the, the tournament and uh, the vendor.
2: So as a, an older jaded player, I don't use prize support a lot at my events for a couple of reasons. One of them is most everyone there goes out and buys the models they want and a prize i'm going to give them is something they're either going to give to someone else or sell on ebay Um, very rarely do you give someone a prize and they're like hey it's this thing that i was about to go buy for myself what i do when alamo is coming is the week of alamo i go through my budget and i see how much money i have left over and then i go to my friendly local gaming store and use that money to buy as many cool things as i can uh, last year at Alamo, I think we had a couple of terrain crates and everything else was hobby supplies. Uh, laser pointers, measuring tapes, dice, uh, grass tufts, green stuff, paint brushes, modeling tools, the army painter modeling set, anything interesting that I thought people would look at and go, huh, that's kind of cool. I kind of want that. I think we had a couple of card games or tabletop games that were on clearance that my store just threw in for free. And then at Alamo, we do it raffle prize style. If you win something at Alamo, you get a great trophy. Good for you. I might give you a box set if I have enough of them sitting around, but I would rather everyone get something at my event than the winners get all the swag and the other players, the other 60 or 70, get nothing and go home with sad tears. I'd rather hand them out to my players and make everyone happy. Um... Some of the Texas tournaments have done this kind of secret thing we're doing about prize giveaways. And that is when you turn in a player's choice vote, the pool of people who put in votes is the pool the prize support gets drawn from.
4: Let's talk about trophies. So I think a cool trophy is a great thing for people to win. Uh, Do you make your own trophies? Do you buy them? How big is, is too big? I've seen some of those Spanish tournaments. They have whole swords and I'm like filled with jealousy, you know. Uh, So talk a little bit about how you guys uh, go about getting trophies for your tournaments. As you're going through and you're
2: setting up your own tournament, you're giving it a unique feel. Trophies are one of the biggest ways you can convey a sense of consistency to a theme. Uh, At Alamo, we give away handmade wooden plaques that have a laser engraved Alamo on them. Um, They're done in a font that's very 1850s kind of Wild West headline. And so they feel very rustic and very much like the spirit of the Alamo and the spirit of the Texian Revolution, which is what a lot of the scenarios get based on. And then we name our awards after historical people in the Alamo battle, to help you remember it. The best general award is named after Juan Carlos de Santa Ana, which you guys may have heard of. He brought this giant broken army to the Alamo and Texian the tables in about four hours. Our best sportsman is named after Davy Crockett because everyone loves Davy Crockett. Uh, Our best painted is after... The commander of the Alamo, who is just a pretty boy, and if I mention his name, none of you are going to know who he is. And then our overall goes to the Jim Bowie Award, because Bowie had it all. He was pretty, he had a badass knife, everyone liked him, and he was a damn good soldier. So that's our overall. Um, And in years past where we've had more of a prize budget, uh, I bought a Bowie knife and laser engraved it for the winner.
1: I purchased all mine online from different trophy sites. Uh, I have a 3D printer, but I couldn't find anything cool enough so uh, i decided instead of trying to spend a lot of time making my own i decided to buy a bunch of ones and i've had mine they progressively get bigger as you get your tournament. so third place is smallest and then you kind of work your way up to i've got the the largest one is the uh overall i'm all try to keep it in theme with the the tournament mine's obviously bison brawl so all mine are buffalo themed my biggest one is a giant golden buffalo uh for i it's like I don't know, two feet tall, and oh, uh, <laughs> it's it's gonna be pretty dope. You're gonna know that, that that was the person that won overall. Also, I I give one for last place, so I got the bloodiest buffalo, and I've taken that thing and covered it in uh, blood splatter, and then of course counter charger award, the uh, hardest award to get. Reach out to Rob, harass the hell out of him, and give a give a little cool a little uh, medal or or a neck piece for the counter charger award as well.
5: Yeah. I've typically done, I I used to do swords or the big battle axes or something like that. Um, We've kind of changed it up over the last couple of years, trying to get more creative. Um, Last year we gave out these huge growlers to the team that won first place. And then we had engraved flasks for like the best sportsmen and gave out paint racks to the team that won best painted. So I, I like trying different things, being creative with the prizes that you give out. I mean, if you go to Ork Town, they do some wacky stuff with their prizes. There are some really disturbing and also cool things that they give out at their event for, uh, for their trophies. And then, um, the Unplugged guys—they have their their trophies are the same from year to year. And I mean, like you know if you've won an Unplugged Gamers event because you get a trophy that has a little outlet on there because it's unplugged, and so it's it's themey. So I I think there's lots of different cool ways that you can do trophies for different events. Like when I when I went to the King Beyond the Wall tournament in Canada, they gave out a big metal Game of Thrones Iron Throne that was legitimately like. 12 pounds of molten metal, <laughs> sharp swords sticking out everywhere. So there's lots of cool ways that you can do trophies. Good luck flying with that. <laughs> yeah, I was worried about coming back through customs.
3: In the annals of Warhammer, you know, you, you've you been to a Wapaka before, I believe. Yes. There's nothing like when you can give somebody a full-size corn shield. That's right. Trophies is the one area you can go all over the top, and I think it can be really a memorable thing.
5: Yeah, I think that's the stuff that stands out if you have some elaborate, crazy, over-the-top trophy. I don't think you can go too over-the-top with them, right?
3: And in fact, in my room, that's the only trophies I've got are those crazy, over-the-top stuff. You know, the paper certificates and the the Adepticon medals and stuff, they all kind of just get shoved into the closet.
1: I will say that I'm, I'm not doing it this year, but I, that's probably going to happen next year. Uh, give a shout-out to Kings of Winter. Um They did – it was either their sportsmanship award or it might have been their their primary one. Whatever it is, that big trophy that you're going to have or whatever you're kind of focusing in on, have everybody sign it. I mean it's it's a if you've got the room for it um you've got that sword you've got everybody there that weekend have everybody sign it take a moment when they're checking in to just sign it that way it just adds all that extra flavor all that extra character to that tournament if you've got a big I don't know maybe you're giving away a bottle of alcohol for best sportsman along with your other item have everybody sign it like it's one of those things that it'll it'll keep that as a memory not just this kind of generic uh, item on the uh, shelf, but you know, something that ties it specifically to that year and to that event for the memories.
5: Yeah, I think there's definitely different ways to make that memorable, right? A few years ago, we did an acrylic um, matchup board like NCAA tournament style, March Madness style, and all the names were up there and then as you went through all the brackets round after round after round, we had all the names plucked off the board. So at the end, the winner got that bracket with all the names of all the people throughout the tournament. So yeah, Yeah, I think there's different ways to do that. That's really cool.
4: Do you think we've missed anything? Anything else that goes into making making tournament that we haven't talked about? Any last words of of wisdoms you want to drop on the the counter-charge audience before we wrap up?
2: If you're thinking to start an event, start with your budget. The worst thing you can do is have to spend your own money on a tournament. Believe me, you aren't going to make money from a tournament. This is a labor of love that every TO offers up. But if you're paying your own money, the wife is not going to be happy with you continuing to do it. Um, so be realistic with your budget. Figure out how much it's going to cost you for the venue, uh, for tables if you need to rent them, because not every venue will provide tables, uh, a bare minimum terrain, pr- price support, and printing. Uh, And make sure as you're working through it, you don't break your budget. Unless you're willing to spend your own money on a tournament, which if you are, good for you. Planning, planning, planning. Do everything as much as
1: as possible ahead of time. uh, Because you're going to always forget something and you're going to be scrambling it at the very end. Especially if you're a new TO like my ass. It's one of those things where I've tried to account for as many things as possible. And I even budgeted time at the right here toward the end for certain things and those last two weeks there's no chance but yeah you're just the rush you're, is on right the rush is on people start hitting you up with questions there's so many other things going on like don't cut anything close get it all done as as much ahead of time as you can uh, and um, hound your hound your players about getting the, the money in and and as a player perspective, be kind to your tos. Understand that all the tournaments are completely different. They're going to have a different feel to them, and understand that there's so much work that goes into this stuff. That um, and they're doing it for you guys. They're doing it for all the players. Everybody just wants to have fun too. The tos they want to they want to see everybody too. So don't don't immediately come in and start complaining. Oh, it's not as good as such and such. Like oh, that's so frustrating. Like, don't do that.
5: <laughs> yeah, I'll say. Uh, don't be afraid to steal great ideas from other tournaments and i think brian you meant this earlier as a to you want to get out to other tournaments too so you can get the word out and support other events too but don't be afraid to steal great ideas i mean i'm no genius i've pretty much stolen all the things i do at crossroads from other events that i've been to and kind of put them together the things that i like most the things that i think make for a really smooth tournament that's that's how you get to to where you are and you're not going to have all the answers for the first few times that you run your events but you learn over time of the things you like to see for yourself as a player at other events you go to so i think that's important i Get your play, Keep on your players, get the word out early, make sure people are registering, signing up. And I, we, we sound like we're talking down to all the players, but it's a lot of work, right? Getting people organized and 40-plus people, getting them around and all coordinated and on the same page, getting payments and on time. Because as the TO, there's a lot that goes into that and a lot that you have to coordinate. So, yeah, it's a lot of work kind of keeping track of all the players and getting people on the same page. And so just be ready for that.
6: Not really. I think those are two really good things. I mean, when it it, it's just a lot of work. um, Be prepared that it's going to be a lot of work, and uh, maybe I could say you you know take notes. Um, I write notes to myself every tournament. I don't have time to even compile them really, but like I take them during the tournament, and then as I start planning next year, I have to go through those to make sure you know things that I didn't think about or things that I. You know, I wish I had done um, or emphasized that's it's I mean, it's just you're you're constantly improving and really you're what you're trying to improve is to make it easier for yourself. Right. Because it's it, it is a lot of work, as everyone said, um, very rewarding. It's a lot of fun. Like it's a it's a great party atmosphere that you can you get to throw for the community. So it's definitely worth doing just
5: yeah, I think that's one of my favorite things is that at the end of the day, just looking around the turn hall and seeing everybody just communing and getting together and doing things together and having a good time. I think that's important. And I, I think that's one of the, the favorite things for me about running the events.
3: I think for me, I'm going to tag on what both Brian and Chris said specifically. Brian mentioned, you know, plan, plan, plan. Absolutely. Put as much effort as, into this as you can at the front end, because if you're going to run multiple events over the years, what I found, me personally, with Lucy DeBrawl, Brawl, the first year was a lot of work. Second year was a little bit less work. Third year was a little bit less work because I was able to build on what I did the year before. And so you can leverage that effort from previous years to make something really great.
4: That is awesome. We have covered the A to Z of U.S. tournaments. Um, let us know what you think uh, when this is posted. Let's... Uh... Chime in, in the comments. Is there anything we missed? Are we wrong? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Okay, we're going to slide into a quick break. We'll come back on the other side for shout-outs and to wrap up the show.
7: I'm Adam
3: Padley, the best UK master, and you're listening to Count
4: Charge. Now your time, guys. Let us know about your upcoming events and do some shout-outs. Brian, let's start with you. Yeah, so I run Bison Brawl out of Oklahoma City. Uh,
1: this year it is September 14th and 15th which will probably already be done by the time this airs. Uh, next year, I'm hoping to get with some of the Texas guys and uh, orchestrated in the October timeframe. Uh, it's a little bit cooler in Oklahoma during that time, so it uh, works out a little bit better as far as timetables go as well. It, singles event, I'm looking I've got space right now, and it's guaranteed for next year up to 42 players. Uh, and i am already started talking to other venues and um, maybe looking to get it even bigger and better. Definitely reach out to uh, Bison Brawl uh, on Facebook and BisonBrawlGT.com.
4: All right, Ryan, how about yourself?
2: So now that you've heard about these other inferior tournaments, I'm going to talk to you for a moment about the Alamo. The Alamo is held the first weekend of November. We are held on the Riverwalk. You can literally get drunk and stagger and fall in. I know because I've had to pull a player away from the edge of it. Uh, We are at the cheapest bar on the Riverwalk. Beer is $2.50 on Friday. It's $3 a pint on Saturday and Sunday. You can bring in your own alcohol. The scenarios are unique. Uh, No one does scenarios the way we do. We play split points tier, so you'll bring 1,995 points for Saturday and play three games. You will play 2,500 points on Sunday. It affects your strategy going into each game what point value you're on. And sometimes on Saturdays, you get to play at 2,500 points because I'm that nice to you. The paint judging at the Alamo is probably the best in the country. Our paint judge has been doing it for a very long time. He's very good at it. Very rarely do people complain about it. Um, And it's really a cool event because... The Masters race is over except for a couple of people, so everyone's there to have fun. Everyone's there to try new things. They're going to play lists they've never played before. Uh, We've had a player decide to play down points just for funsies. Um, It's a very unique experience. People come from all over the country to come hang out, drink beer, roll dice, and enjoy San Antonio. Uh, best of all since it is on the river walk downtown san antonio is right there it's less than a mile to walk to the alamo so if you want to bring your wife if you want to bring your kids you can do that they have the entire city at their feet and you can play games for all weekend
5: awesome cory over to you yeah so uh we run crossroads uh again it's the last weekend of september every year uh this year again this might have uh aired after Crossroads has run this year, but we're already full up on teams this year. Next year, we're going to expand it out even more. We've got 18 teams this year. Next year, we're going to expand it out to 20 teams. So um, again, it'll be the last weekend of September. So mark your calendars for that. And we are also, um, myself and John Vanas we are hosting the Masters tournament next year for 2020. And so that'll be the uh, end of February. And if you make the Masters team, obviously, you qualify, you go. But we're also doing something different this year where we're running a 50-person side event alongside the Masters. That's going to be an open uh, tournament. So that'll be running concurrently. It'll be in the same hall, the same venue, the same hotel at Tioga Downs Casino and Resort in Nichols, New York. And so if you don't make the Masters team and want to come and be a part of that experience, highly recommend it. So and Again, everything is self-contained. It'll be in February. So February in upstate New York, you don't really want to go outside. You don't have to. There's a casino. There's a pool. There's a hot tub. There's five restaurants, four bars, and the hotel. Everything's self-contained in one site. You don't have to go outside for anything. So I highly recommend if, uh, if you're thinking about that or if you ever wanted to be see the master's experience up front, it's a huge national community community building event I mean you've got of course because it's masters you'll have players from every region across the country it's just a great experience so highly recommend that as well um, We'll probably be opening registration for that in December of this year after all the uh, masters
1: teams are solidified
3: and we expect Ronnie and others from Mantic to be there as well
1: and we're playing third edition and, right? we're,
3: and we're playing third edition so Ooh,
1: yeah. that
6: true that
4: I enjoy the drama.
6: Chris, how about yourself? Uh, yeah, so I run Mountaineer GT. I think I'm going to take a page out of Corey's book, and we're just going to go ahead and do the last weekend of June uh, for, the, for the foreseeable future. Next year, I haven't actually made an event for it yet, but it's going to be the last weekend of June. Uh, you, you heard it here first. Um, we, we You can find us on Facebook, Mountaineer GT, and then you can also find us at MountaineerGT.com. Uh, another – Mid Atlantic event we didn't uh, really talk about, but I I wanted to plug a little bit is uh, Vanguard GT run by Mike Adkins. He's been on the show quite a bit. Uh, he runs a a really fantastic smaller event um, in at the very beginning. Actually, I think it's it's the weekend of Lone Wolf. It tends to be, um, which is which is unfortunate for people who might want to travel. But if uh, if if you were not going to go to Lone Wolf and you're up for traveling, it's it's a great event to go to because it's very. Hmm. familial i guess i could say we you you show up at the venue and he and uh and his partner robin they make they provide every meal so you've got like friday night dinner and then you got breakfast lunch dinner breakfast lunch saturday and sunday um so it's it's a it's a great event to go to we just have a lot of shenanigans and some people usually end up playing some drunk like round one or round Four games at like three in the morning, and uh, we all get to laugh at them the next day. So it's been a it's been a good thing to do. And then we kind of mentioned earlier um, reaching out to online stores or or other stores for price support. So one thing I want to mention is I I run Troll Horde Games, and uh, you can always reach out to to me through web through the website it's trollhordegames.com. dot um, I even have a uh, event sponsorship page up, so it's just got all the information there. But we can help provide some
4: much discounted
6: price support materials for for your events if you're looking for something like that
4: okay from my part i want to just do a quick shout out to all the to's out there because i think uh, you know it is an un- unappreciated job often and uh, the work that you do really keeps the community going so thank you thank you thank you to you for running uh, events wherever you're running them i also want to shout out to uh new players that are coming in as we see the ramp up to version three i think we're seeing more and more new players we're certainly seeing more people listening to Countercharge, and you know we're really knocking the content out there at the moment. God knows how long we can keep it up, but uh, you know if you are a new player. Why not check out a tournament near you? Because I think uh, that's the real way to experience Kings of War. It's all very well playing in your bedroom, which is really cool. And there's a loads of players that do that. But tournaments are a really different scene. They're not at all as competitive as you think they are. They're a good time. So shout out to all the new players and shout out to the TOs. Rob, over to you.
3: I mean, I just would echo what you've already said, which is tournaments are a great way to experience Kings of War in a new way if you haven't done it. Reach out to anybody that you know that plays Kings of War, and I guarantee you that our network will figure out where the tournaments are for you and put you in contact with the right people. And if you can come to a big event like the U.S. Masters and play on that side event, I can guarantee you that it will be the thrill of your life. Please come and join us, because I guarantee you, you'll have a lot
0: of fun.
5: Till next time, keep countercharging. Thanks for listening,
0: and we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com on Twitter at countercharge15. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin MacLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.
3: We're back again with our second episode from the tournament, pers- you know, t- the, uh, it's too early. Um, Chris's point, you know, about, uh, I've, I'm losing my train of thought here.
1: Herding, herding cats. Herding cats,
3: yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know where I'm going with it, so I guess that's that's my only point. It's, it's been a long, it's, um, I'm, I'm old today, I guess.
5: <laughs> <laughs> it's,
1: too it's, many- it's early, it's God. still early. Unless you're paired with Rob, and then it's just a nightmare. <laughs> so I, I was actually
3: gonna because I, this is gonna go a little later, maybe, maybe even like a little. While. I was gonna, I was gonna say like, uh, it sounds like you're feeling the pressure right now, Brian. That's what I wanted to oh say. Oh my
1: god, man! I don't know what what I was thinking. Being able to like try to get this so close to my turn, I understand, and dude. I was gonna be able to do. I'm I'm an idiot. <laughs> yeah, it's you, you, we always bite off more than we can chew, right? Oh my god, no joke. <laughs>